This is Jocko Podcast number 330 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. A little after midnight on Thanksgiving 1943, while patrolling the black waters off Cape St. George near New Guinea, Burke's five-ship wolf pack spotted a Japanese radar contact. Immediately and without permission, Burke radioed his squadron, hold your hats, boys, here we go. Into the dark and into the enemy's guns, Burke's destroyers dropped throttles to flank speed and launched torpedoes, exploding two Japanese ships outright, then wheeled to starboard. Like the Parthian horses, archers, into the face of three more enemy ships that immediately tucked tail and fled. In the night-long pursuit, Burke's deck sailors discharged and loaded their guns so fast and so long that many passed out in their turrets from the fumes and from sheer exhaustion. When Burke's squadron finally returned to port, said a Time Magazine reporter, every ship in the roadstead turned up its searchlights and every blue jacket in the fleet manned the rails in tribute. It was, Halsey said afterward, the classic sea action of this war. For 13 months, Burke commanded his destroyers like Patton did his tanks. To every order, he invariably responded, proceeding at 31 knots. A boiler-bursting pace, said one historian that caught Admiral William Bull Halsey's attention, who addressed the fu- his future dispatches to 31 Knot Burke. The name stuck. In the last two years of the war, Burke was forced to give up command of his own squadron in order to become chief of staff to Mark Mishner, a famous aircraft carrier admiral. Neither a pilot nor possessing any experience in aircraft carriers, Burke was at first out of place in the new staff role, an onlooker to the aviators and a jolt to his morale that almost immediately expanded to his waistline. Essentially confined to the flag plot, the ship's tactical command center, Burke was forced not only to learn everything he could about aircraft carriers and their tactics, but also to elevate his operational understanding beyond the amateur's urge for the battle at hand in order to plan for the next one. Beyond the Marianas to the Philippine Sea, beyond that to Leyte Gulf, then onto Iwo Jima. When submarine intelligence told him the battleship Yamoto was spotted en route to an unknown location, he spent all night hunched over his charge charts a caliper in hand then launched 400 planes against the spot where he would be if the roles were reversed and sank the ship with more than 3,000 men aboard before his planes returned Burke had already switched his attention to the next battle by the time they reached Okinawa the final terrible fight of the world war of world war two Burke had settled into a punishing routine always up at 0330 The sleep he did manage was usually interrupted by some 20 calls a night. In his waking hours, Burke watched nightmares unfold, his only sanctuary the flashes of courage that for years to come, said a biographer, would seem to whisper to him something about the meaning of the U.S. Navy. The worst of these, and the greatest, 
was the final transmission of a newly commissioned ensign who had taken command of his crippled destroyer after everyone else in his chain of command had been killed. Before the ship sank and the transmission was cut off, Burke heard the young man say, quote, I will fight this ship to the best of my ability and forgive me the mistakes I am about to make, end quote. That voice would haunt and steal him for the rest of his life. And that is an emotion and a haunting that I think many of us feel. Did I do enough to train the young leaders that followed me? And the answer always seems to be no, I could have done more, I could have passed on more lessons learned, I could have done a better job teaching our operational history to the next generation so that they would not repeat the mistakes we made. But there's so much to teach and there's so much to learn and there's so many lessons to pass on. And sometimes lessons don't get passed on. They get forgotten. And only the deepest of dedication and research and commitment can bring those lessons back. And that reading that I opened with was an excerpt from the book. The book is called By Water Beneath the Walls, which was written by a friend of mine, a SEAL teammate of mine by the name of Ben Milligan. Ben has been on this podcast before. It's podcast number 298. Go listen to that if you haven't listened to it yet. But on that podcast, we discuss where Ben came from, how he ended up in the SEAL teams, and how he ended up writing this this incredible book, which took him seven years to write. And the book is is an amazing book. I think this is the most important historical book I have ever read on the SEAL teams. And I think it actually might be the most important book on special operations as a whole that I have read. And if you haven't read this book, buy it immediately. It is absolutely an incredible look at the history of the SEAL teams, but it ties in so many other aspects of the military and special operations and the wars we've been through and the amount of commitment that it took to write this was one amount of commitment that can come from only someone with Ben's personality and his his drive to find out and unravel history. And we're lucky enough to have Ben back with us to discuss more of these incredible accounts of histories, uh, history from the SEAL teams and of the entire community of special operations. So Ben, thanks for coming back, man. Thanks, Jocko. It's great to be here. And Thanks for that that section, too. It's one of my favorite sections in the book. Um, One of the hardest things you do when you write a book is uh, you have to edit it and you have to cut it, and I think we talked about that last time. This was one of those sections that I had probably 15 more pages just on Burke that I had to drop. That 
chapter had been completely structured differently. I had started with Burke um, at his change of command ceremony when he became the CNO, and then I rolled into, you know, this, you know, 15-page just, uh, it was my biggest uh, uh, introduction of a character, um, even bigger probably than Draper Kaufman's. I, I justified that in my head when I was writing it because I always felt like Burke, or at least when I discovered Burke, when I discovered his contribution to the uh, creation of the SEAL teams, I felt like uh, next to um, uh, Phil Bucklew, Arlie Burke is the indispensable man. He, um, The SEAL teams would not have existed without him, without, uh, and the, and the, um, it wouldn't have existed without his biography that he just consolidated into, you know, this, um, complete preoccupation with keeping the Navy connected to offensive warfare. And, and I, there was just example after example of his time in World War II. Uh, you know, there were, uh, he was in, uh, at least two, um, uh, two vessels being shot out from under him, or two two vessels were sunk by the Japanese that he had to, and um, he had to escape from. And in each uh, instance of, uh, of his escape, he was leaving behind every possession that he had, uh, every possession that he'd gone through the war with. Uh, and in the process, he was rescuing guys around him. Uh, in, in in one case, uh, he risked his life going uh, into a completely um, uh, uh, smoke-filled passageway uh, to rescue a. Uh, uh, I think it was a seaman, like a, a radio, a radioman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the you know the chief of staff of the ship, and he had no business he get off the ship, but he's you know saving the sailors around him. Um, but yeah, he was uh, like you like you mentioned in your um, your opening. Uh, the um, his commitment to passing on what he had learned not just what he had learned, but uh, his belief in what the Navy was to that next generation. That's what kept him uh, as a CNO for six years. Uh, like I say in the book, it's uh, two years longer than any, the, even the closest competitor. CNO is, is normally just a two-year spot. Uh, Admiral King, um, who was uh, the CNO during World War II, he serves for four. But after King, nobody else comes close except Burke, and Burke's there for six years. And whenever I, I know that you... You know, you take pictures of your watch when you start working on it at 4.30. Um, it's just funny because I, I've often thought that I should start taking a picture of my watch when I sit down on my computer to start writing. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be as uh, motivating. But whenever I hear somebody talk about uh, how you have to uh, get eight hours of sleep a night, you know, sleep's the most important thing. I'm like, man, I know that you're wrong. And I know it because of Burke. <laughs> I know it because of, every, you know, other people, high achievers, like, Somebody like Burke, he never slept. Uh, yeah, that that why that passage stood out to me. Um, and look, I've got so many marks in this book now uh, from the last time we did this, and just from reading it. But that 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 idea that here's this guy who's listening to a young ensign go down with his ship, and he's thinking to himself, you know, after this guy says, "Forgive me the mistakes I'm about to make," and you know. Arlie Burke's sitting there thinking, he could have taught him. He could have given him a heads up. He could have given whoever that commander was or the lieutenant commander or the, the lieutenant that was above this guy in the chain of command. All these guys, could, could, he could have taught them something that maybe they wouldn't be in this situation. And just knowing that every effort that you gave to, to pass on the lessons, they failed. 
And now this this guy is this young man, this young ensign is dying, and he's going to go down with his ship with all these sailors on board. And there's there, there's just all these lessons. And and I, I mean, there's so many times when when I was in the teams. Well, a good example is Mike Thornton. You know, Mike Thornton came on this podcast a couple years ago, and we went moment by moment and debriefed the the operation where he for which he was awarded the, the Medal of Honor. And it's, it's three hours. It's like a three-hour debrief. And I was in the SEAL teams with at the same time as Mike Thornton. I knew Mike Thornton. I had met Mike Thornton on several occasions. I'd spent time with Mike Thornton. But I'd never gotten like a full debrief of what happened. And you think to yourself, all those lessons that didn't get passed on until he came on the podcast and told me like all these little lessons. And then you start thinking about someone like Burke or or this entire book that you've written where there's just all these lessons that are completely forgotten. And well, I should say they're almost completely forgotten. I don't know that they're completely forgotten. I know I know the point you're trying to make and I agree. Like um, since the book has come out, I've been keeping a list. There's been 12, uh, 12 guys that I interviewed in the course of the book that aren't with us anymore. And I always think, like, what would have happened if I had started the book a year late or a year later than I did? Or what opportunities did I miss because I started the book when I did and not two years earlier? Like, how many how many stories did I miss or how many lessons yeah. did I miss? Um, the one thing, though, that I think about when I think of, like, um, you know, somebody who's as young as that ensign was in the, in the section that you read um, who's going down. I mean, that ensign, Mike Thornton, when he's – I think Mike Thornton was 25 when he rescued Tommy Norris. Um He's not old enough. I mean, he's old enough to. He's he's a he's a grown man. I mean, he's uh, um, he he has a twenty five year old's perspective on life, but he doesn't have all the context that you know that you and I have. And Echo, I mean, we've lived long lives. I mean, we've we've been around here for a minute, and we've collected stories and we've collected context, um, and we have uh, you know enough um, you know, ammunition. You know, whether it's Marley or um, or whatever to uh, help us or to convince us to, to, to make right decisions. Um, but somebody who's 25 years old, or this ensign, I, I imagine this ensign, you know, probably 22 years old. Like, he doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. doesn't know anything about the world. He hasn't heard, you know, uh, stories, you know, like the one that you just read. Um, but what he does have, uh, he, he has this, uh, he's been imprinted by the institution that he served in and by the people that are around him. Um, and that's, I think that's an important, um, thing that, you know, BUDS does or boot camp does. You're, you're taking, uh, young folks and, you know, from lots of different backgrounds and without, you know, the context that we have as you get older and you, and you read books and, and you have these experiences, but you imprint, you know, the values of that institution on these people and you give them, uh, new mandates for what's expected. Um, and that's cool. Yeah. And I appreciate that. But, you know, like, like I said, this, this ensign wasn't in charge of the ship, right? There was, a, there was an XO, there was a CO, yeah. there was an ops boss that are all now dead. And even with the imprints of kind of the broad value system that we have in the Navy or the broad value system that you have in the Marine Corps, the broad value system that you have in the Army, 
there are actual tactics that you can know that can save your ass in certain situations. And, you know, I, I, when I was in trade at, like I remember sometimes, especially when I first got home from Ramadi, I would be watching a guy move through the streets in, in mount training, right? And I would feel like sick to my stomach if a guy wasn't taking cover. Mm-hmm. And it's a really simple thing that, hey, someone tells you, hey, listen, man, only move from cover to cover. Don't ever be in a spot where you're standing and you're not in cover. Don't ever let that happen. Mm-hmm. When you're not behind cover, you're moving. That's the way it is. Obviously, it wasn't instinctual to a bunch of people coming through, you know, advanced SEAL training, coming through workup. There would be, out of every 10 new guys, there would be three of them that would stand around in the open, like nothing's going to happen to them. Hmm. And so there's there's instincts, and that's why when I read this past, I was like, the feeling of the sickness, that I can only imagine is even worse for him. Because he's thinking, here's another ship with however many 300 souls going down on it, and I know that I could have had them, you know, do do yeah, whatever right. they could have done differently, right. and and the the lessons just didn't get passed on, and and that's why to me this book that you've written is so important because it does have lessons that I saw I saw us relearn some of the lessons that you've got in this book. I, I watched this happen, and so I, I'm glad. Look, I'm I wish you would have written it earlier. Right, I wish you would have written it 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, but you didn't because you're lazy. Um, <laughs> but it took you seven years to write this thing. Um, and the, the lessons are, are just, they're just awesome and they're important. And you know, you know, the whole dynamic, when you understand the whole dynamic of where, where this personality comes from, where this mode of operating that that is sort of look the SEAL teams everyone every SEAL is a little bit different but there's some core things there that are that, that they're going to be there mm-hmm. no matter what SEAL you talk to from what generation they've got this they got a couple things in their soul mm-hmm. and when people start to un, those things can fade but when people start to understand where that thing that little nugget in their soul where that came from and they go oh that's actually not just a that's not just a, a rock that's a cornerstone and we should focus on that. We should remember that. We should know where that came from. We should know why that was important, that we had that characteristic or we had that, that, that way of thinking about things. And for me, this book illuminated so many threads of the thought process that we have as SEALs, where they came from, to make sure when someone says, well, you know, we, we need to just fall in line with, no, no, actually, we don't need to just fall in line. There's a reason that we think this way. There's a reason that it's beneficial. There's a reason that it's beneficial to keep an open mind. There's a reason that it's beneficial to utilize decentralized command. There's a reason for those things, and we should never forget where they came from. And the more we understand where they came from, the more we can act upon them correctly. Right. So, with that, I'm sorry, your book gets me super fired up about some stuff. What can I say? So this, uh, uh, my idea, and I don't know how well we're going to be able to stick this idea. Um, because you have way too much freaking, you have way too many facts and stories running around in your head, and I've got too many questions running around in mine. But my idea was to try and go through some of the chapters, and like you just did, you just said you cut about 15 pages, cut out 15 pages of Arlie Burke. By the way, did you actually write those 15 pages? Yeah, yeah, they're written. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, I had. That's horrible. Well, some of it's like, you know, extreme. Some of it's like. You some know, of it's notes. No, no, no. I mean, it's all written, and it was oh, okay. all like, I mean. 
I mean, I have a not a paragraph, but I have a couple sentences on Burke's wife. I'm like, all right, I need, I need not all of this needs to be in here. <laughs> you know, but when you find, like, I don't know your experience, but when you're editing, like, if you're writing a novel, I expect, like, the uh, the impulse when you're, you know, cutting stuff is that, you know, you have a turn of phrase that you really like. And you're like, oh, man, that is... I mean, that's the best thing that's been written since the Bible. <laughs> and you don't want to get rid of it, and your editor tells you, well, nobody gets what you're trying to say. It sucks. You know, you need to lose it. Um, but I think when you're, you know, when you're writing history uh, and you're, you've done all this research, you've followed you know, you know, so many rabbit holes, you've done so many requests, the Navy Yard or wherever you've gotten your material, uh, and you've found what you, know, think, you think is this incredible document, you want to use that stuff. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you fought for it. I mean, you want to put it in there. I mean, I, um, I have a lot of detail in each sentence. I and I don't do that, you know, to make a reader, you know, frustrated. I have it because, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm the way that I'm writing is I have four note cards that I'll sit in front of me, and those four note cards you, you will usually have, you know, two or three points on them. And I'll star which one, which point I have on each note, note card. I'll be like, I want to put that, that, and that in one sentence how do I do that? Like, how do I fit all that, you know, stuff in there? So, yes, I did. I cut probably between 10 and 15 pages of Burke's biography. How, what, however, when I, when I rewrote the chapter, I didn't completely lose that. I mean, I, I try to say that I, I left as much on the field as possible. I just, you know, compressed it into mm-hmm. this really, really, you know, tight diamond of, uh, of information. But, yeah, everybody, I mean, I, I, there were whole characters that I cut, and I got better as time went on. So um, when, I, when I was thinking about how we were going to do this, and I started to go back through, you know, chapter by chapter, you know, what were sections that I cut, what were sections that I lost, and, um, you know, not just characters but entire episodes, I saw, um, I saw in these chapters my notes that I was putting together were getting shorter and shorter and shorter each chapter because I was learning as I was yeah. doing this whole book. And I, I did my research and I did my writing chapter by chapter. I would research and write one chapter and I would go back to an archive. I'd collect all the stuff and I'd write that next chapter and then I'd do it again for the third chapter for whatever I was doing. And I got better as I went. Um, better at identifying what what was going to fit. And also you must yeah. have seen a better a clearer vision of the story arc. Yes. And so you knew what was important and what was not. Yeah, much better. Much better uh, idea of the story uh, and much better um, respect for my reader. Because uh, I was, you know, when I was reading this, I was completely in love with my own pen. <laughs> I thought everything I wrote was fantastic. I, was like, I wrote the first chapter and I said, well, you know, I'm, I probably should just send this off to the Pulitzer Committee. <laughs> you know, so they have just, you know, have this thing up front. They'll, they'll know what's coming eventually. Um, but, you know, when I reread that chapter six months after I'd written it, and I saw, it, I was like, "All right, well, I'm not sure why that character's in here." <laughs> it's like, "Oh, that I don't know about him either." <laughs> like, yeah. I found myself. I had like, I, I, I did five introductions of five different characters in that first chapter before I really got to Carlson and his raiders. Like, what the hell was I doing? Like, I don't even know why I spent all that time doing it. <laughs> like, I was just, but I was learning. You know, yeah. I mean, you're you're learning the process and you're learning how to get better as you go. Um, uh, but yeah, you seem to think about the, you seem to think about the reader a lot more than I do. Are you like, oh, the, I don't want to put the reader through this. I'm like, well, I'm the reader. I mean, I mean, I'm the reader. I'm my oh, imagine. Okay, I, I mean, it. I'm, I'm my own reader. Like I wrote, like I said, I, I wrote the book that I wanted to read and I, you know, but like you, you have to think about your, 
your reader. You have to, or at least I felt felt like I have to th- think about my reader because otherwise I'm writing a diary. I don't yeah. want to write a diary. I, I want guess, people to read what I'm writing. I guess know? the closest I would come to is like, oh, does this would this make sense if I was reading it? So yeah, I guess yeah, I, I think own, about yeah. the reader a little bit. You're your reader. You're. I mean, I don't think about the reader. It sounds like you think about the reader sympathetically. They're getting no sympathy for me. <laughs> you're like, well, I don't want to put the reader through. So I'm like, hey, the reader better get on board with this. <laughs> I I don't know if I like I. My reader was, uh, um, I wanted it to be, I wanted my reader to be, you know, a team guy. I wanted this book to be for the SEALs, but I wanted my mom to be able to read it too. Mm-hmm. So that when I was thinking like, when I wrote this paragraph up, uh, was it sufficiently dense? Was it sufficiently, was there, was there enough material in it or enough interesting things in that to, you know, to make me like, oh, that's, that's good stuff. But was it also written well enough that my mom could understand it? That's what I was thinking about. Well, it's also a, the last time that we were on here, yeah, uh, and you asked me what my mom did, and I just said that she was a housewife. Uh huh. How'd that go over? It didn't go over great. So what's the real deal? Uh, I don't. I don't have a great. <laughs> my mom was everything. She set, did everything. You she, set yourself up, and I that's set really myself. Like, no, my mom did everything. She was. Uh, she was. Got it. She was the chief of staff. There you go. That's a that sounds better than housewife, I guess. Yeah. Um, unless you're a badass housewife, in which case you're like, yeah, I'm a badass housewife. What's up? Jeez, we know what uh, that entails. That means I'm the, the 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 chief staff officer, the chief financial officer, the troop motivator. You're everything. Yeah. Getting after it. She so was. there you go, moms. So now she can stop being mad at me. This is six months later. <laughs> right. All right. So my my thought was we go through this and talk about some of the because. You, you know, you and I had conversations during the during the podcast, after the podcast, about the amount of people. The same thing you're saying, saying right now. You had to just cut things out, cut stories out. Yeah. And so many of these things can can be their own book, can be their own story. You could peel pull back the pull the thread on any of these characters, and you could you could you have your own book. You have another book on just about any of these characters. Um, but I thought just t- going through some of the chapters, going through the chapters, and talking about some of the things that didn't quite make it. Uh, chapter one. Is called the reluctant. By the way, I was thinking about this as I was putting this together. Chapter one is called the reluctant creation and violent demise of the Navy's first commandos, the Marine Corps Raiders. Your subtitles for each chapter indicate that you have a lot to say. And this is going to be a long book. Like chapter one, the reluctant. You know, my books have like chapter one, get some. You know, boom, we're done. Right. Chapter two, get more. Like I'm an idiot. You're over here. The reluctant creation and violent demise of the Navy's first commandos, the Marine Corps Raiders. Uh, that was my editors. That was Julian Pavia. He uh, he sort of insisted. So each of my chapters were something like I don't know, like it wasn't it wasn't as uh, as tight as like Carlson's Raiders, but it was something like I, the the only one that I remember is for chapter five for my UDTs. It was like the the Mermen of War before they had come up with the Frogmen as like a moniker for them. They were calling them like the really clunky. Oh you know, God, that's awful. Especially after that movie. What's that movie? Echo Charles. Which one? Uh, Zoolander. You know what I'm talking about? So in the movie Zoolander, uh, which has Owen Wilson in it, who's like one of my favorite people of all time. That guy seems so chill (laughs) and cool. (laughs) And it also has... Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. So Ben Stiller plays like a really dumb model, a a man model, right? And and he comes from some freaking mining town in Pennsylvania or something. And he's in this bar with his dad. He's trying to be like more manly. And his dad's in there, and his dad's played by uh, John Voight. John Voight. They're all they're all like covered in mine dust. Vince, Vince Vaughn's in there, no lines. He has yeah, no lines. Just no lines. Just being tough. And so Ben Stiller's in there trying to be tougher, 
and a and a commercial comes on the TV and it's him advertising some like fragrance and he's dressed up like a mermaid and his dad's like I can't have you running around here as a damn mermaid and he says it's not a mermaid dad it's merman <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I thought of when I saw that thing I was reading through it yesterday I'm like did we really have to go there with the merman donkey Clunky's at the least. All right, so so, but my yes. So his point was, you need to give the reader some idea of what's in store for them. Like if you start a chapter on the, if you okay, so imagine you're a reader, you're picking up a book uh, ostensibly about the Navy SEALs, Mm -hmm. and that first chapter is you know you're you're reading page you know three pages, and it's all about the Marine Corps. What the hell are you doing? You have to give you know your reader some idea of what this is about, and. You know, when I when I thought about it, it, you know, it completely made sense because you know now I'm I'm not just doing the you know the reader you know help uh, on chapter one with the, the Marine Corps Raiders, but I'm gonna help I'm gonna be helping the reader when it gets to the Army Rangers and everything else. Like mm-hmm. it has to tie back in. Each of these chapters had to tie back in uh, to the SEAL teams. It had to be relevant to you know how the Navy had you know created this first. Yeah. So, well, there that's you go. why we have the clunky. The, that's why you have the, the big, long, big titles. long titles for all your chapters. Yeah. You, you're one of these guys that pulls off like, hey, if I'm just really nice, maybe Jocko will leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you gave this super nice explanation. Now I f- kind of feel bad. Like, no, that's a good title. You know, <laughs> you did good. You put me in check, all humble, and I'm all I, like, oh, I, God, I, I'm a jerk. I'll just go. I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <sighs> Marine Corps. Um, Let's talk about this chapter. I know one of the guys that you mentioned to me is a guy named Pete Ellis. Pete Ellis. He yeah. didn't make the cut, huh? No, I thought Pete Ellis. Pete Ellis is relevant because Pete Ellis is the um, he's the Marine. He's a, a First World War Marine who is um, he's the first Marine to articulate a vision for the Marine Corps that is more than just a uh, subordinate service to the U.S. Navy or the Navy's police force. And he imagines, after he sees what the Marine Corps is capable of on the Western Front, um, the Marine Corps is the, uh, when World War I starts uh, and um, the U.S. military finds itself in the trenches, uh, not just in the trenches, but then moving on the German army, um, the best force that the United States military has is the Marine Corps. So there's all these Marine officers, staff officers, Marine commanders, who uh, suddenly by comparison with their peers in the U.S. Army, uh, see that the Marine Corps is the best service, uh, the most capable service, um, you know, that we have. So why not, you know, start thinking beyond, you know, just this idea of uh, being, you know, the the shipborne utility force for the U.S. Navy? Why not start thinking of the U.S. Marine Corps as almost a rival to the U.S. Army? Uh, So in order to do that, in order to justify that in Congress, uh, the Marine Corps had to articulate a mission for itself. And that mission uh, was, you know, it was essentially come up with by Pete Ellis. Pete Ellis, uh, he identifies the enemy, or at least, uh, you know, this, he's writing this in 1922, uh, 20 years before World War II starts. He knows that the next war the U.S. is in is going to be with Imperial Japan. He knows how rapacious Japan is. He knows uh, their uh, ambitions to dominate all of Asia. Uh, and if the U.S. military wants to uh, confront Japan, it's going to have to have a force capable of doing that, a force that's not just, um, you know, a, like I said, the a shipborne um, uh, utility force of raiders or um, jungle fighters or anything like that. They're going to have to have all the logistics uh, capable of supporting um, an amphibious army ashore, artillery, uh, aircraft, 
logistics, ships, landing craft, all that stuff. So he is the one that comes up with this plan. Problem with Pete Ellis is he is a personal disaster. <laughs> he is nobody uh, that I wrote about is uh, is as much of a liberty risk. I mean, he is. Uh, he, he suffers from depression, um, uh, something they call neurasnia. Uh, and he, uh, whenever he, when he's writing this plan, the advanced base uh, operations for Micronesia, when he's writing, when he's drafting this plan for the Marine Corps, he's doing periodic bouts uh, at the mental hospital in Washington D.C. He um, uh, was eventually. It, did he? What did he do in World War One? He was a staff officer, but I, 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 I wasn't completely clear on uh, his combat record. Mm-hmm. I got the sense that he actually saw a decent amount of combat. He um, uh, he uh, wrote a plan of operations for, I can't remember which assault it was. I think it was on the uh, Blanc Monk section of the Hindenburg Line, but it was it was supposed it was supposed to be a brilliant operational plan, and it was it was totally successful. Um, and uh, it, it was I think it was noticed by Pershing at one point. Um, it was called one of the best plans in the war. Um, but after that. Uh, you know, when he's, you know, during this period of the 20s, um, after one bout in a, a mental institution, he convinces the Secretary of the Navy or the Undersecretary of the Navy, which is Theodore Roosevelt Jr. at the time, to send him on a, like on an island hopping uh, survey of the uh, Central Pacific so he can justify or so he can prove what he su- uh, suspects, which is the Jap- Japanese are building all these island readouts throughout the, uh, throughout the Pacific. Um, he gets the authorization by uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. He goes out there. Uh, something happens at one uh, of these island bars. He starts announcing uh, his intentions uh, while he's on a bender. Um, the, the spies try and like uh, uh, collect him and uh, get him packed off. He manages to manages to escape, uh, escapes the island, makes his way to another island, uh, and then drinks himself to death. There's a you know there's a whole cottage industry of uh, uh, of writers out there that you know say that uh, he was poisoned or he was killed by the Japanese. I think he was just a drunk and he just mm. his liver couldn't handle it. Did you ever train? I, I don't know what the name of the place is, but for a while we were using some facility and I don't want to name it, but you'll know what I'm talking about. That was used to be an institution, like a mental institution. Did you ever train at that place? Uh, oh boy, that sounds familiar. I mean, for a while, we and the teams were going to some place that was formerly a mental institution, and it was creepy, creepy. Like you'd yeah. go into certain. Is this East Coast or West Coast? It's in the middle of the country, kind of. I don't know that I was there. Um, man, it was weird. You'd go into rooms and you just like look around, and there'd be weird. It was weird. It was really weird. It, you know, uh, like you get a little bit of scariness. You know what I'm saying? Where you know it's night and you you're with like one other dude and you're standing in some weird hallway and there and, you, and it's it looks like it's from 1922. That's what made me think of it. Like 1922. Well, you know, when you start talking about what a mental institution was like in 1922, it's not like what it's like now, right? Right, right now, it's you know probably they've got nice windows and they want to make things safe and open for people to understand and learn and feel good about themselves. This was not the scenario in this place where I trained at at all, man. Like what, like an asylum? Yes. No, 100%. It was an asylum. Yeah, it was like an asylum. You thought it was haunted. That's why you're scared. 
kind of. <laughs> I think there's probably justifiable reason to think that too. I mean, when you you see like not just you know asylums, but uh, there's this been or there's been this story of this uh, orphanage in Canada, you know, that had all these indigenous children. And they're finding uh, just mass massive burial plots now of all these kids that were killed there. It's horrific. Yeah. Well, that was. Uh I'm not an expert on that for any Yeah, well, that was that was one of the goals was to uh, just re-educate the children. <laughs> you see it happening now, right now, with our school systems. Kids are getting re-educated in a new way. <laughs> Speaking of ending up in asylums. So <laughs> uh, there's another character that's uh, yeah. Yeah, a, a, a guy named uh, Red Mike. Yeah, I was hoping you'd ask about him. You could write a book about Red Mike. That's um, Red Mike Edson. He's uh, so when um, I was trying to you know sort through the uh, the relevance of the Raiders, uh, the Raiders are important to the history of the SEAL teams because uh, they're the first instance where the Navy telegraphs its desire for its own raiding force. Uh, they want to um, broadcast or they want to, um, franchise raids throughout the Pacific to draw the Japanese attention away from the areas that they're about to attack. So Japanese defenses are too consolidated. They want to spread them out on all these islands. So, uh, when, before, uh, the invasion of Guadalcanal, uh, it was the Navy's idea to pull the Japanese attention all the way to the central Pacific, you know, 2000 miles North. Um, so the idea is, launch some submarine raiders on these things. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, spread the spread Japanese attention, spread Japanese defenses. Um, and I was looking, I knew that, you know, I knew that that's, that was the goal, and there were two uh, raider battalions to do it, or that, that were designed to do it, the first raider battalion and the second raider battalion. Now, I knew the second raider battalion had taken Macon, and that was probably more in keeping with uh, the, the point that I needed to make uh, to launch pad into my second chapter. What I didn't like was that I would have to spend so much time with Evans Carlson. Now, if you read the book, Evans Carlson is one of probably the three most peculiar characters in the book. Uh, he's really frustrating. Um, and, you know, you, you, if you're writing history, you know, the goal is always to be objective with characters. You don't want to telegraph to your reader that you don't like somebody. Uh, Evans Carlson is a, is a person it's hard not to <laughs> dislike. Merritt, uh, Red Mike Edson, on the other hand, is, uh, he's incredible. Like you, I mean, he's, um, I mean, uh, he, he was incredible before the war in Nicaragua. He, I mean, he fought, he fought through all these little banana wars. Like, I, I know that the Marine Corps, um, has this love affair with, uh, Chesty Puller. Um, there's no reason that, uh, uh, they should have any less uh, affinity for Red Mike Edson. He's everywhere uh, during World War II. Um, leads some of the most daring um, uh, assaults uh, of the war. He's at uh, Tulagi, he's at Guadalcanal, he's at Tarawa. I mean, three major um, uh, uh, battles in Marine Corps history. He's got, a, I think he had two Navy crosses, a Medal of Honor, Silver Stars. I mean, he was, he was incredible. Um, uh, and he's got a terribly tragic end. He, um, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Did you read about him? He, yeah. He, uh, he, he leaves the Navy or he leaves the Marine Corps, 
uh, under protest when uh, during the uh, the revolt of the admirals uh, after World War II, right before the Korean War, um, when the Army and the Air Force kind of collaborated to uh, strip the Navy and the Marine Corps of funding. Uh, he resigns the Marine Corps in protest so he can uh, protest more loudly. Um, he, he has a series of jobs, and eventually he commits suicide in his garage. He, um, and I don't know. I mean, it's one of those – you don't hear a lot of – uh, World War II veterans that uh, that that made that decision, um, but uh, I mean, it stands to reason, you know, considering everything that we're going through right now. I mean, someone who has gone through as much as you know Red Mike Edson did had suffered as many blast injuries as he no doubt you know suffered. Um, I think he was probably dealing with all the same uh, same things that so many of our friends are. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think that idea of resigning in protest and what you get from it where where it ends up is a tough thing to talk about because once yeah. you're done yeah you're done you're done and actually um i think it was green during the vietnam war addressed it who he was like the commandant of the marine corps i, I, I can't I, forgive my memory but you know he was getting interviewed well why didn't you you know leave because you got mcnamara who's a jackass you got lbj who's a total jackass maybe it's time just to you know, make your statement. Hey, I, and he said, look, I'll be in the news for, for 48 hours. And then that's it. They'll have another guy and I'll have no influence. And that's, you know, I, I've often talked about Hackworth doing the same thing, Vietnam, you know, he could have been a division. He could have been a brigade commander, could have been a division commander. He would have had whatever thousands of troops underneath him that he could have fought in a different way. But instead he sort of resigned in protest. Right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, there's a, there's another, um, the commanding officer of, uh, I want to say the Lost Battalion, World War One, but he was a Medal of Honor recipient, and he killed himself um, after the. Uh, he was one of the pallbearers at the tomb for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, hmm. and you know that happened. I want to say like nineteen nineteen was when they actually had everything set up for the to dedicate the tomb of the unknown soldier he was as a medal of honor recipient he was one of the guys that um that was one of those pallbearers and then i think it was about a year later he booked a, a sea passage from new york to cuba or new york to florida or something and then wrote a wrote a note and disappeared you know killed himself um did you read that patrick o'donnell book what is it called? Um, I can't remember what it, what it's called. It was just one that I had seen. It was it looked interesting. What's it about? It's about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Oh, okay. No, I did not read it. I'd be curious to read it. It's about. It, I think it's about all all the pallbearers in that. Uh, oh. Um, well, oh, there's curious. one of them. Yeah. Uh, and then, well, a little bit. What, what what was it that you didn't like about Carlson so much? Carlson, he's just man. Carlson is, um, and Carlson. I, I, there were lots of characters that I came in contact with that mm-hmm. are other Carlsons. <laughs> They're characters that you, you know, they they've done, an they've done an incredible uh, amount for their country, and. But you can you have the benefit of hindsight. You have the benefit of perspective, and you have to um, you have to weigh in on their legacy. Um, 
So has Carlson done more than me? Yeah, has Carlson done more than you? I mean, yeah. I mean, he's he fought through World War II. Like, I mean, there, he's, he's uh, it's not even close. Like, it, yeah, we, there's nothing we can't compare. You know, our contribution to somebody like Carlson. He's, um, he's he's in the first um, one of the first raids of the entire war, and then he fights um, in successive battles. Um, the what's important about Carlson though is that the Marine Corps. Um, loses all respect for him after the Macon Island raid. They give him another chance with the long patrol on Guadalcanal, and he does admirable work there, but it's not enough to overshadow uh, the the defeat and the uh, the aftermath of the Macon Island raid. The Macon Island raid, um, it isn't really known how uh, disastrous, disastrous it is until 1943, a whole year later, when uh, U.S. forces retake the island, and they discover that the... Um, uh, that the Marines that uh, they believed to have been drowned uh, in the uh, evacuation weren't drowned but captured and killed, you know, beheaded by the Japanese. Um, so it's sort of a uh, sort of a failure that kind of unfolds over time. Um, but when the the full scope of the failure of the Macon Island raid is understood, um, the Marine Corps never lets Evans Carlson command troops ever again. Now that's perfectly, you know, fine for the Marine Corps leadership. They was there something about his personality that his personality, yeah, but it was also his politics. He was, uh, I think, he was a borderline uh, communist. He was definitely a populist, um, definitely like a uh, a socialist populist. Um, but he was um, by the end of the war, uh, he's advocating for the Chinese, uh, the not the nationalist Chinese, the the Chinese communists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, eventually, he he dies in disgrace, penniless, because he uh, he he had to had, he resigned from the Marine Corps. Um, I can't remember exactly what happens to him in the aftermath, but I know he has no money, and, and Teddy Roosevelt has to pay for his funeral. Not Teddy Roosevelt, um, James Roosevelt. But uh, some of it's his personality. Some of it's just he, he's got he's kind of ponderous, like uh, he's a bit boring, like you know stuffy. Like uh, one of the the things that I think is most telling, the most descriptive uh, episode I have, or a little vignette in the book, is when one of his junior officers comes up to him and asks him for you know a few books uh, to read uh, that will help him understand you know the you know how to command or the military art better, and and. <laughs> Uh, all the books that Carlson recommends are books that he's written. <laughs> like, you've got to think a lot of yourself <laughs> to tell somebody, you know, if they're looking for books to read, you know, read these five that I've written. So he tried to read them, and they're all impenetrable, boring books about China. <laughs> like, he gave up. Okay. Well, I'm very thankful right now for the book About Face by Colonel David Hackworth because whenever somebody says, hey, well, you know, what's a good book for me to read about leadership? I would say, oh, yeah, read About Face. Because otherwise, I'd be pulling a Carlson and telling him to read Extreme Ownership or Leadership Strategy and Tactics. I'm a loser. No, you don't like me, too. I'm right up there with Carlson. I didn't say that. I, well, if it wasn't for Hackworth, I'd be right up there with Carlson. Uh, and hang on. You, you haven't seen the books that Carlson wrote, True. too. I had to read them. Uh, <laughs> and were they just nasty? They're just boring. Do you remember any titles of them? Uh, Did you read the whole thing, or are you like, this is ridiculous? I get the idea. You Carlson's know, a dork. In the beginning, I did. In the beginning, I had everything collected. I read books that I knew that Carlson had read just because I wanted to think like he was thinking. He was fascinated with Mao, so I was reading Mao when he when I was writing this chapter. So I got better uh, with my research as I went on. But at the time, like when I wrote chapter one, 
I had not yet stepped into an, ar- an archive. I wrote the first draft of chapter one just based off of, uh, out of books that existed uh, from online archives. I was able to find a ton of material online uh, on the Macon Island Raid. So, there, I mean, uh, you, you pay, you know, 20 bucks a month. You have access to Fold3 and a couple of other archives, and you can find the after-action report of the uh, USS Nautilus or the USS Argonaut. Um, so, you know, not having stepped into an archive, I was taking advantage of everything else that was available to me, all the books that Carlson had written, books that Mao had written, um, you know, things, things like that. So I was, I was saturated with all this stuff, this sort of extraneous. And I got better, you know, in my research. So chapter two is the first time I stepped foot into an archive, and I was like, oh, I can do this better. <laughs> so, anyway. All right, well, let's get to chapter two. Um, chapter two, which is called... <sighs> The sidelining of the Army's amphibious soldier scouts and the call-up of the Navy's second-string sailors. I think that's a pretty good title. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's pretty good. All right, for the second-string sailors, that's a nod to, you know, these guys, all these second-string sailors were all uh, members. Every single one of the uh, initial uh, Navy contingent of the Scouts and Raider program are all NFL veterans. They've all been... I'm uh, Bucklew. He's uh, not only um, a uh, uh, not only was he a college football star, not only an NFL star, but he was uh, uh, he was building his own football say, he team. He made his own team, right? He 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 founded the Columbus Bullies, uh, and it would have probably been a um, a successful NFL franchise had it not been for the start of World War II. That is a freaking legit name, too. Columbus right? Bullies. The Columbus Bullies. Yeah. Man, if I would have known, see, if I would have known that, tasking a bruiser might have been tasking at bullies. <laughs> I guess it doesn't quite work quite as well, does it? No, it seems kind of sinister. Yeah, but today's, I guess, I guess, especially in today's climate, you'd be like politically incorrect mm-hmm. to call yourself the bullies. It's yeah, true. I'm a bully. He looked like a bully. If you see pictures of him there, I mean, I went through, you know, like piles of pictures of Bucklew. Um, and, uh, you know, every every picture, especially in those World War Two days, he just looks like a looks like a like a dick. He's an asshole. <laughs> he looks like it, but that's completely opposite of what everybody I talked to said of him. Actually, said about the guy. He said they they all described him as the nicest guy. Like he was he was just so much fun to be around. Uh, was, was super humble. Um, but yeah, every picture he managed to like you know go from what I assume is a you know pretty fun-loving guy and two, you know, has this big scowl on his face. And so what, 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 I, I meant to go down this path with a little bit of Carlson. So Carlson's personality, what, was he a dick? Was he an arrogant guy? No. What was he, his deal? He was... Uh, How do you end up on these failing missions? Was it a lack of experience? Was I think it, it was It was a couple of things. He, um, he was infatuated with the Chinese and the Chinese operational system. He was in uh, the, 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 the Marine Corps or the, the slogan, the Marine Corps slogan of gung-ho mm-hmm. came from Carlson. He, that's, his lo- that's his lasting legacy to the Marine Corps. We understand gung-ho to me, an expression that it, um, you know, epitomizes you know, Marine Corps tenacity and Marine Corps. Um, what do you, what Freaking do you call charge it? the machine gun nest is yeah. what it means. Uh, but what up? In, but it really means work together. It means work together, <laughs> right. It's a Chinese expression. It's vague. I'm not sure if it's even accurate, but he took it from his time uh, on the long march with Mao's guerrillas. Um, yeah, it means work together. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what, when we picked apart 
some of Mal's work on the podcast. The thing that's crazy about Mal's work is it's ba- it's essentially saying you need to utilize decentralized command to win in military operations. And I'm like, hey, bro, Mal, you, that applies to everything, dude. Like, it, you can't have decentralized organization in order to win a war and then centralize your government as soon as you're done and think that you can explain how many, you know, what what every farmer in the in the country is supposed to grow and how much we're going to sell whatever we're going to sell it for. Yeah. Like, it's crazy that they came to that conclusion. I don't understand. You know, there's so many contradictions like that in World War II. Uh, I mean, how are the Germans, who are the most, uh, you know, hierarchical government system, you know, on the planet, and they managed to produce a military that was able to use initiative decentralized command mm-hmm. yet at the top they're stultified they, they they don't they can't accomplish anything i mean they can't you know release the panzers and d-day like i mean they're but yeah at the lower level they're you know able to do you know able to be dynamic and fluid and agile and all the rest you know what you when your ego starts to get out of control you start to think i better control everything uh, that's, yeah. that's what happens. Well and you, you could see, I mean, it seemed like Hitler did that throughout World War II. He, the more he won, the more he thought, well, I better just control everything. See, it's working. I better just keep doing this. And by the end, it was all on him. Hey, we're going we're gonna to attack Russia. Even though his generals are saying, hey, bro, not a good idea. No, we're doing it. Yeah. But uh, Carlson, the, the other thing that Carlson did was he was, um, he was so infatuated with the Chinese system that he, was, uh, he would eat with his men. He would have these like town hall discussions. He would uh, uh, he essentially abolished rank, except for like in certain uh, aspects. He, um, uh, but when he got on the, I mean, when he was um, you know on the actual Macon Island raid, you can see a clear uh, misunderstanding of what the mission was, which told me, I mean, you're, you're that is conveying to you. He doesn't know what his mission objective is. He hasn't thought through. He spent two weeks sitting on a submarine, you know, uh, driving across the Pacific under, you know, completely miserable conditions, you know, sweating, you know, through his, you know, yeah, like, and he finally gets there. I was on modern day subs that had AC and they were super clean and you're not worried about getting depth charges dropped on your freaking head. Imagine a two week transit. No, I can't. God. Diesel fumes yeah. all up in there. <laughs> and he gets there. They get on the island, and they look around, and there's, you know, there's nothing really to raid. I mean, just the fact that they landed there, the fact that they were able to assault a Japanese position and win, mission accomplished, get off the island. There's nothing else that you have to do here. There's no intelligence that you're really going to gather. But he, he just, he's paralyzed. Which just, you know, like I said, it conveys that he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't really know what the, the purpose of this mission is. He hasn't connected, you know, the uh, Navy's planner's vision, you know, to their actions on on that island. So, and then you're comparing that to Bucklew, who was like a good guy, a nice guy, even though he looked like a bully. Um, so what you, wait, wait, you said this is when you started going into the archives for the first yeah, time was chapter first, two chapter two yeah so i because you I, didn't spend enough freaking time invested in in research one. just on just on online reading carlson's books so you wanted more yeah you're a glutton i don't know i mean if i had known so there were two things that i got from chapter one writing that i was like i was encouraged because i felt like i was a good researcher i'd put you know a, a, a compelling chapter together um were you a sniper no I was a uh, calm guy and a breacher, JTAC type. Yeah, I was a calm guy too, but I'm just thinking from a patient's perspective. 
Yeah, I'm really antsy. It's I find really? my yeah. I, I I don't know what the the disconnect is because I find myself like in ever whenever I'm being instructed now or like I'm, I find myself like I get real like I I, I can't I can't listen to this guy. <laughs> I got to get out of here. I'll find myself just leaving. I would have thought you would have gone down the sniper road because you have this you know super anyone that's you know going into archives and and reading Carlson's third book on whatever <laughs> communist leadership from 1932. Now, I didn't want to read it, though. Like, I remember looking at that book and just kind of, like, hanging my head, like, I got to read another one of these things. Uh, like, I don't know what, I don't know why I was compelled to do it. I was, though. And I wanted, I just wanted to get it right. I wanted to, I wanted to have a good idea of who this guy was. And I also didn't have the benefit of reading Carlson's, you know, letters like I did with other people, mm-hmm. you know, say like a Bucklew or a Halper. Is that because Carlson didn't have letters? No, he has them. I just didn't go to the archive. Oh, so now so you that, get to the archives. Yeah. So that and now you're starting to find real. I'm finding real documents. I'm finding like, I'm getting, I know Bucklew. I know Halpern because I've, I'm, I'm reading their letters. I'm reading like, um, I'm reading, you know, the letters of the, the, the folks that, um, you know, created the scouts and raiders like Petticord and, uh, you know, not just, you know, reading their letters, but I'm talking to family members, talking to people that actually knew them. I'm getting a real sense of who they are. It completely changed how I researched, but it, it, it also told me one thing. I was not going to be able to, you know, write this book from my basement, which was terrifying. <clears throat> I was going to have to go places. I was going to have to, you know, hunt for stuff. And it was terrifying in the beginning. And but talk it, to people. Talk to people the worst. <laughs> <laughs> that that did become like you know the one nice thing about uh, you know writing a book about World War II is um, you don't have anybody arguing with what you're going to write about them you know they don't exist they're not, oh, they're they're not around anymore <clears throat> yeah when you get to Vietnam I'll tell you I'll tell you a story later in the the podcast there's people who are still alive that I wrote about that don't like what was written about them <laughs> ouch but you know you, you you insulate yourself from you know the the criticism by your due diligence. You make sure that you get it right. If you don't, shame on you. Mm-hmm. But in chapter, have two, you had to retract anything? No, there's nothing that I've retracted. Nothing. There's nothing that I would. I've I've communicated with with folks. Uh, you know, after, um, and, and the uh, one case, uh, he the the person I wrote about, he had just passed away. His family read about uh, what I wrote about them. It's nothing. You know particularly damning or anything like that, but they weren't, uh, they weren't thrilled to hear that their dad had, um, you know, not completely succeeded in Vietnam and had <laughs> kind of run off with a nurse in Saigon. <laughs> um, so what I said to them is, you know, they, they, they were, I think the, the note that they sent me said, you know, we were disappointed to learn about, you know, what you perceive as our dad's failure in Vietnam. And I responded, I don't think your dad was a failure. Absolutely not. He prepared SEAL Team 1 for war. He failed in this one narrow, narrow context. And that context being, did he advance or uh, did he advance naval special warfare toward, you know, what they ultimately became, land-focused commando raiders? I, in, in that context, no, he didn't. In another, he did. He was a success. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I, I told him, I, you know, even though uh, he failed in that, you know, uh, particular moment, ever, lots of people were failing in that yeah. particular moment. Nobody really understood what, you know, what they were getting their hands into. Yeah, it's Vietnam. real easy to look back with hindsight and Absolutely. say, oh, yeah, obviously we should have done this instead of that. It's like very easy to look back and say that, you know. Right. 
And so I, I ultimately told him, I was like, I'm, I'm proud to call him my teammate. I mean, I, I look at his legacy and, you know, I, I see, you know, mistakes that I made. Like, I'm not perfect either and nobody is. So anyway. So, the, so we get the second st- string sailors. These are the, the tuna fish, right? Yeah. He's the tuna fish. These are all guys that have gotten kind of roped into the U.S. Navy um, kind of accidentally. Like Bucklew, he joins the Navy because the Army and the Marine Corps won't take him because he's humongous. I mean, he's too big. He tries to volunteer for the paratroopers. He's too big. Uh, you know, and the, the quote uh, from, from his oral history is that the recruiter told him that the, uh, the Army could take two instead of him based on just his weight, <laughs> which is completely accurate. And Bucklew isn't even the biggest one. Uh, Big John Tripson, um, when you see pictures of Bucklew and Tripson next to each other, Tripson is a head taller than Bucklew. How tall do you think Tripson was? Um, six, seven, probably. I mean, he's massive. He's a mountain of a man. He's huge. Six, seven? And he's just Big, yeah. He's just a big. <laughs> we had big this guy. conversation on the last podcast because imagine being six seven, like two sixty, two seventy in nineteen forty. Right. I mean, no one's even lifting, bro. No, nobody's lifting. These guys are just jacked through nature, <laughs> through football. They're yeah. playing a lot of football. Like, and Halpern, who I wrote about, he's the smallest one. Halpern was the you know he's the Jewish guy that you know went to play for Notre Dame, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he was. Like six two, two twenty five, something like that. And he's the smallest of the smallest of the tuna fish. So, yeah, so all these guys end up in the navy, which, and they're thinking, hey, we're gonna figure something out because we're jacked, we're physical, we're well, they, kind of beasts. Yeah, they they and, pull them in to be like calisthenics. Yeah, I was gonna say that, and that's what they get pulled. They in to think do that is. that's what they're gonna do. They think they're you know joining to go you know do this like you know whatever commando program, and they get you know roped into. You know, Gene Tunney. Gene Tunney is, you know, he's a, a famous character um, himself. He's the uh, uh, he's the two-time um, boxing champion. Right. He, he beat, uh, help me out. Joe Lewis? No, not Joe Lewis. Um, this is terrible because I wrote, I wrote two whole pages about Tunney's fight in um, Philadelphia uh, with... Um, I can't think of it. Uh, I know that I know that you wrote about the fact that he like trained. He was the first person that trained. Yeah, he's the hard. first guy that like yeah. that 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 was going through physical training in order to get good, and he was able to. He only fought like three times though. Yeah, and two of those were championship fights. Jack Dempsey. Okay. Jack Dempsey. That's right. So, uh, all right. So now we got these guys. So he, yeah. So they. They're they're in uh, Gene Tunney's regime of physical fitness instructors. They're kind of getting. Uh, they're taking Navy recruits. They're 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 training them. They're putting them through um, you know little little PT sessions like uh, um, they're they're doing log PTs. They're doing like little uh, like group activities. These stuff that you know uh, either Gene Tunney had pulled from the Marine Corps or uh, that uh, they had kind of um, developed along the way themselves, which you know that's kind of plant a seed for later when, you know, the scouts and raiders uh, uh, conditioning curriculum gets compressed by Draper Coffin. Uh, but they all volunteer for this uh, this commando program. They don't really know what it is. Uh, but then they get hoodwinked again from, um, you know, Tunney's regime uh, to being landing craft skippers for Army commandos, The you know, the, the raider uh, section of the scouts and raider program. Um, that would piss me off so bad. Wouldn't it? Oh, man. They find themselves out yeah. there, and they're like, all right, you guys are going to be in charge of the boats. 
I would be angry. What's the character? You got some guy named Witzleben? Oh, yeah. Somebody yeah. that you cut. You were telling von, me about von, this guy. What's von, this guy? Uh, uh, Witzleben. So when I wrote the uh, initial draft of this chapter, I, the, the thing that I, I felt like I had to convey was that uh, um, uh, the, the senior commanders in World War II, they had, uh, they had a serious problem uh, when it came to uh, amphibious warfare. One, they didn't have landing craft. Uh, but two, even if they did have landing craft. <laughs> it's a bit of a problem. They didn't know, uh, the Army's commanders, they didn't know how to put troops ashore. And there were... Uh, there were logistics problems. They they knew that they would need to, even if they uh, were able to land um, men, even if they were able to put landing craft on beaches, uh, they needed to put um, men on beaches in which there were beach exits. So mm-hmm. exits so you could drive vehicles off the beach. I mean, if you land on a beach that has, you know, cliff faces and you can't drive off the beach, then uh, what good is it that you've, you know, had all these landing craft? You have to have uh, guys that can find beaches, good beaches, uh, and then uh, uh, alert the Army uh, to where those beaches are so you know, can uh, bring an entire landing force ashore. The Army has completely, um, in the interwar period from World War I to World War II, they've done almost nothing uh, when it comes to the development of amphibious doctrine. Nothing showcased uh, the threat of all of that more uh, than... Uh, the terrible disaster at Dieppe, which happens in August of 1942. That's the first time uh, the Allies attempt to land um, troops on an enemy beach or a uh, a Nazi-controlled enemy beach. Now, the preponderance of troops in that battle are Canadians. There's a decent amount of British commandos. Uh, There's a handful of American uh, Army Rangers. Um, They go ashore. Uh, Most of the Canadians are killed or captured. Um, And part of the reason that uh, this raid or this uh, assault or this attempted, you know, uh, dress rehearsal of D-Day fails is because they don't have a good assessment of um, what the beach exits were like. They don't know how. Uh, when they got ashore, the tanks either, um, uh, they weren't able to get off the beach because the sand was too um, too loose. They couldn't, their, their, their treads um, buried up to the hubs. They couldn't get out. They couldn't get off the beach. The, the tanks that, or the tanks and the vehicles that were able to get off the beach, they ran into tank traps almost immediately. So um, the idea was, you know, create, you know, writing this whole chapter on, you know, the Dieppe raid was just, you know, uh, a way for me to talk about, uh, you know, all the imperatives that a, uh, a scout and raider force would need to um, um, solve. Yeah, bring, you know, to, to, bring, bring a, to the table yeah, you for, need, the, for, the, for the mission. Right. You needed to find a beach, you know, that you could land on. You know, the sand is dense enough. Uh, that had beach exits, uh, and that you could, you know, signal the rest of the fleet for. I cut it all. Gone. <laughs> all of it was gone. And Vitzleben was one of those characters. He was one of the architects of, uh, you know, Hitler's initial push to fortify um, the the Atlantic Wall. Uh, I don't know why I put Vitzleben on my notes, but he was he was a character that I got sucked into because he was one of those guys that he hated Hitler. Uh, and yet he still did everything he could to, you know, fortify the coast. He was ultimately one of those guys that uh, uh, participated in the July 20th plot to kill Hitler, and he ended up uh, getting executed by dangling from a meat hook. Um, anyway. It's a little bit of a rabbit hole, isn't it? Isn't it? Every one of these freaking characters is like... I know. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot, but, you know, all these things are just, you know, they're... There you know. What what's the what's the problem with Bucklew? 
The problem with Buckley is he's everywhere. Meaning what? He's too. He's moving around too much. No, trying he, to do too much. What? No, no, no. He like the pro the pro the Bucklew presents a problem. Presented a problem for a uh, for a writer, not for anybody else. Buckley's Buckley's oh, incredible. Okay. And I uh, I wrote I wrote you know sections about Bucklew in chapter two. I wrote sections about Bucklew in chapter four. Sections about Bucklew in chapter six. Cha- a section. Or I mean, a whole chapter about him on. Uh, um, in the Buckley Report, and then again, uh, he he comes on the stage uh, in uh, in my chapters on Vietnam when he's the commander of Naval Operational Support Group. He's everywhere. He is the indispensable person in uh, the history of naval special warfare. What was uh, the the problem that I ran into is that if I had talked about him a little bit here, and I had talked about him a little bit here, and then a little bit there, I was kind of wasting ammo on him. I was going to let her. I was going to you know. I was going to force a reader to kind of um, discover um, uh, Buckley's, All of him. Buckley's relevance, you know, instead of like compressing Buckley into that final uh, um, chapter in, you know, on the Buckley uh-huh. report. And really, you know, instead of, you know, spreading, spreading out your tanks, you know, consolidating them into, into one punch. So the reader finally gets a sense of how important this person is. I just didn't want to waste Buckley, you know, uh, throughout the book. I wanted to, you know, collect him on one thing uh, but it took me you know almost until the book was entirely written and then I had to go back through the book and I cut Bucklew cut Bucklew cut Bucklew so I could you know yeah because otherwise you're kind of giving away the story because, you're giving away the story, because right? Bucklew doesn't become but you're not he wasn't Bucklew out of the gate I mean he was a no, stud sure he was but he awesome. wasn't like Phil H. Bucklew right which is what the where SEAL training takes place it's called the Phil H. Bucklew Center for Naval Special Warfare right our schoolhouse is named after this guy, but he didn't come out of the gate that way. Mm-mm. He came out of the gate as a guy, and he never kind of shines in the way that other characters did. So I, I was always frustrated because I knew that I had to talk about Bucklew, and I knew that Bucklew was so important. But he never, you know, he's not the first guy ashore like Halpern is. He's not, uh, uh, he's not the the ground force commander in China like Halpern is. Um, but he's there. He's always there. Like all the, you know, like some some other characters too. So, but I I just didn't want to lose the. Was he was he younger? Is that uh, why he was still around when Vietnam gets comes no, into he, play? They were all about the same age. Uh, I think he was younger than Halpern. Halpern was the old man of the group. Halpern was thirty four. I think he. He was, was thirty four when he enlisted as a seaman, right? Halpern was, <laughs> <laughs> and he was a Notre Dame graduate and a NFL player and all this other crazy stuff. NFL player. He was running his dad's uh, commercial light company in Chicago. He was developing a clothing store. I mean, he was kind of like he was kind of the Jocko. <laughs> like he had a, he had a lot going and on. And then he just enlists as a seaman. He was married. Like he, and he and he was a professional, you know, sailboat racer. He was a competitive sailboat racer on Lake Michigan. I, I don't know if you remember in the the uh, in his epitaph that I write in the book. He was. Halpern was, uh, he was in the 1960s Olympics uh, for sailing. What the Wins hell? Wins a bronze medal. What a freaking stud. Yeah, he's incredible. And he was 34 when he, so he must have been old in 1960. He's, he's old, and in the pictures of him, like He must be like 55, sailing. 60 years old yeah. in the Olympics. He's the oldest man that was competing at that time. But by then, uh, Halpern has developed, I mean, Halpern is, you know, he's more than, he's got, he's friends with, uh, He's friends with Sinatra. He knows everybody. Like he's running, you know, he he founded L.L. Bean. Like he was, by that point in his life, I mean, he's. Wait, Buck Halpern founded L.L. Bean? Yeah. 
Explain that to me a little bit. That's, well, as, that's as much as I know. I know he was one of the founders. Finally, I got to the end of one of your rabbit holes. You, you, were, you didn't have the freaking wherewithal to dig in. <laughs> full details of Elohim. Well, maybe if you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I have a factory up in Maine where we produce stuff near L.L. <laughs> Bean, maybe that's a little bit of an important deal. We could have known a little All bit right. more about the frogman history of L.L. Okay. Bean. Well, I'll give him some props. I'll get to the bottom of that one for you. I think he sold his shares. Uh, yeah. But Buck, yeah, Bucklew. He doesn't. He doesn't quite, you know, outshine, you know, Halpern and, and or other other guys in all these other episodes. So, but he does, you know, like he finally takes center stage, you know, during the Buckley report, and his whole biography is compressed into that uh, into that report. But that's getting ahead of the story. All right, we roll into chapter three, and this was. Um, I mean, it's a rough one to read. Uh, I, I was listening to and, and re- rereading it. I was listening to the podcast we did on it. Man, this is a freaking hard one to read because it's, um, well, the name of the chapter is The U.S. Army's First Commandos and the Raid That Wasn't. So this That's is one, not a bad This is one of your more, more abbreviated titles, so, so we give you credit for that. Uh, I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> well... You know, Echo has new, doesn't even say anything. I try and keep it. I try and keep it tight. Echo's not even talking. So once you uh, mentioned it, I can't unsee it. Like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's just getting warmed up, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's going off from here. It's kind of like when Theo Vaughn said. He looked at you halfway through the podcast and says, "Like, what about you? Your name is Echo. You haven't even said anything yet." What kind of <laughs> for a guy named Echo, you for, sure don't say much. You know? Yeah, there you go. That was a, a good observant uh, situation. This was a rough one because, well, I guess because of because of what happened with the Rangers right. in, in the beginning. What, what was what was it like writing this chapter? Um, this is a. This was the fifth chapter I wrote, so I felt like I was I was further along. I was better uh, than um, I was with some of the earlier chapters. I don't I, I don't know if that accounts for you know why I think the the chapter has such a great arc to it, but I or, or it's just because the you know the the history itself has such a you know such a, a tragic arc. Um, it was hard to write this in the the sense that I was I always assumed that. I'd be rooting for the Navy, like throughout the book, rooting for, you know, the the Navy chapters, and then I'd get to an Army or Marine Corps chapter, and I'd be like, uh, "See, I told you so." Like, uh, I knew, I, you know, I knew that you guys were gonna, you know, screw up, and there'd be an opportunity for the Navy. I found the opposite to be true, or not, maybe not the opposite, but I found myself, you know, um, uh, you know, just, you know, empathizing with these guys so much. Like there were, I mean, this. The Ranger contribution um, uh, in World War II is it's remarkable. Uh, the contribution of guys like Darby, remarkable. I mean, um, and to have to write about Darby critically, um, that wasn't easy to do. Mm-hmm. I had to, um, it was the first time that I had to write about somebody who, you know, I knew to be, you know, a legitimate American hero. Um, and and write about them, you know, in a in a light that's not flattering. And I'm not sure that anybody's ever done that before. I'd read a lot of books about Darby, and every single one of them, they, you know, his they burnish his legacy. They they consider him, you know, to be one of the um, the the founders or one of the f- uh, 
the most important, uh, you know, greatest um, contributors to American special operations history. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But there's also this other truth uh, that Darby should have known better. Uh, and he didn't. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I thought, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Like, nobody in the U.S. Army knew better than Darby what a raid was and how a raid could be successful and what elements would have to be put together for that raid to fail. And that raid, I mean, there were so many, uh, you know, kind of warning bells about the raid on Cisterna that should have alerted Darby uh, and the rest of the chain of command that this was, this was a disaster waiting to happen, and yet, you know, nobody threw the brakes on. This is one of the ones where you do a little psychological kind of profiling of Darby. Um, I actually wa wanted to read this section. Part of it I read on the last one, but it's worth reading again. Um, because part of it I didn't read in the last one. Black-haired, blue-eyed, wide-mouthed as a duck, Darby had a ruddy face divided into equal parts, forehead and chin. His left cheek bore a mysterious, brilliant red scar. Not particularly muscularly, muscular, he, he nevertheless affected chest out, shoulders back posture in which his arms always seemed cocked to the rear as if never more than a moment away from snapping to attention. Son of a printer and a musician, the second child between two sisters, he grew up scouting the Arkansas woods and playing the saxophone. When in high school, his older sister died in Texas, he married, then divorced in spite of disappointment and tragedy. His attitude remained just as it's ever been, good-humored and irresponsible, or sorry, and irrepressible. In personality, just like in posture, he was direct, forceful, and never vacillating. Had the military gene not dominated and driven him to a life of soldiering, he would have been, been a salesman. He is the ideal commando leader, wrote Colonel Vaughn at the end of the course. He possesses the energy, keenness, and personality which produces the best out of those under his command. Graduated from West Point in 1933 at the apex of the bell curve, ranked 177 out of a class of 346. He was originally assigned as a field artillery officer. Like all soldiers who graduated then and with that assignment, he embarked on an eight-year career punctuated by the peacetime artillery corps elements, boredom and horse manure. In 1941, he was one of the few soldiers who attended the Joint Army-Marine Corps amphibious exercises in Puerto Rico. Disappointed at not snagging a combat command in the wake of the Pearl Harbor attacks, in mid-January 1942, he was made assistant to Major General Russell P. Hartle, commander of the 34th Infantry and assigned to Northern Ireland, the staging area for a theater of operations till two years in the future. Anxious to get into the war, when assigned to escort General Truscott on his base tour and ranger recruitment drive, Darby made the most of it. Truscott duly rewarded Darby's professionalism and interest with an offer to command the 1st Ranger Battalion. Few offers have been accepted so enthusiastically. At first glance, Darby's rangers viewed him as a pencil-pushing aide-de-camp, and why not? He was, after all, little more than a peacetime artillery officer, not even an infantryman. This perception died a quick death. Throughout their training, Darby slung a standard M1 over his shoulder and rotated between companies, marching, climbing, shooting, doing whatever the men were doing, and doing it better. After an intelligence officer from headquarters briefed the Rangers on the allied procedures for surrendering to the enemy, Darby bristled and took the floor. This formation, this information you have just heard is all very well for those troops who are going to be captured, but that is not for Rangers. 
If there's any, any capturing to be done, he continued, it is the Rangers who will do it. Within two months of training together, the men were reverently calling him El Darbo. By the end, he would defy comparison. An army staff officer waiting ashore at Sorrento in 1943 1943 would find a man wearing a ranger patch and ask where he might find Darby. Smirking, the ranger would reply, you'll never find him this far back. If the ideal army officer was equal parts confidence, bravery, energy, and obedience, Darby was all these things, but perhaps too much the last. And that, that sentence stuck with me um, you know, from a leadership perspective, of course, because it's about balance, right? And you do need to be obedient. But at the same time, if you're too obedient, you're... Yeah, there's well, a there's you're too a, obedient, right? There's a uh, a famous quote um, by one of Frederick the Great's generals. Uh, he says to a young uh, officer, uh, "The the king gave you a commission, so you uh, because he uh, assumed w- that you would know when to break orders." Um, and that's all part of initiative. I mean, that's all like um, if there was one uh, trait that I sort of settled on as being the reason that the um, uh, the Navy uh, seemed to be ahead of the game, or at least uh, ahead of its peers when it came to the creation of special operations units. It was because the Navy had this culture of latitude and this decentralized command and, lat- and uh, um, initiative um, that enabled subordinates uh, to feel like they had the flexibility to make decisions on the fly or uh, adjust to the realities uh, that they were, you know, facing. Whereas somebody like um, somebody like Darby, um, Darby is in the U.S. Army, and one thing that I wrote is, you know, the the chain of command in the U.S. Army um, has never been um, it's never been delinked. It's only been progressively thickened over time. And you see that um, not just in not just today, but you can kind of see it happen uh, gradually. And I would see it, you know, a little bit in World War II, and I kind of got the, my first sense of it here, uh, uh, reading and writing about the Rangers. Um, but I also saw it, you know, in my Korean War chapters. And I would come across, you know, a an Army general like uh, Edwin Walker, who he's um, flying above his troops, above his soldiers, um, in a little spotter plane with a bullhorn telling individual units which one, you know, which one to move. Like, I mean, in some sense that, you know, that says to you, the reader, you, you know, uh, I mean, what a cool, what a cool general that he's, you know, willing to, you know, put himself out there. But at the same time, like, that's also like, that's taking all the initiative away from your guys. And you're, you know, you're, you're not only telling them where they should advance, but you're also telling them that they don't have the authority to to retreat either if they need to or to you know, gain a tactical advantage by maneuver. Centralized command at its worst right there. Absolutely. Um, and, and the last time we, we you were on, we talked about the fact that, hey, when you're in the Navy, you know, throughout history, and you, you know, if Ben's in charge of this ship, you're gonna go sail away from me as the admiral? I can't talk to you anymore. Like, you're, you're, you've got the mission, you're gonna do it to the best of your ability. The other thing that's interesting about this is, Sometimes the ocean is going to dictate what you're going to do. Like yeah, right. there are certain times where you cannot you cannot 
proceed. You cannot continue. The ocean is going to stop you. You know, you can get some really, really extreme examples where weather could inhibit you on land from making the type of progress you want to make, but you... Right, a river swollen. or Right, a river swollen. But those are extreme examples. Right. The out in the ocean, that's kind of a regular thing. You know, there's giant sea states that come through. It's it's so so. You have to have some more ability to adapt because you are. Go- Look, if you're in a sailboat, the wind's not blowing. You're not going anywhere. Right. That's what's happening. You can't maneuver to the north because of the direction of the wind or the direction of the sea state. You can't do it. It's not going to happen. So you have to have some level of flexibility. Whereas more so. On the ground, you can power through a lot of weather events. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm going back to you know times before radios and before before motors, where you're just going to make this happen. So it, it seems like, yeah, unfortunately, um, that Darby was a little heavy on the obedience, and it's not always a positive thing. No, I mean, I, um, and not just on. Um, not just on obedience, but on uh, um, not prerogatives. That's not that's not the right word either. But protocol, I would say. So he gets uh, one of the one of the, the shocking um, things that I saw when he was putting the the cisterna raid together was he uh, put in charge of the entire assault element a uh, an officer who'd never been with the Rangers. Oof! But just because he was in the rank, yeah. Just rank. because he uh, he had a date of rank. Um, uh, you know that preceded, you know the the Rangers uh, that he'd been working with since they had been training together in Scotland. These were Rangers that knew what being a Ranger was. They they these guys had been trained by the British commandos. They knew what a raid was. They knew the you know how a raid would succeed and how it would fail and what the, and the and instead of you know putting one of his you know one of his Rangers uh, that he knew from Scotland in charge, he selected the guy. Um, who'd never been a ranger? Not, and he's not a bad leader. He's an excellent leader, and he acquits himself, you know, incredibly during the battle. But he also doesn't know um, as as daylight's um, creeping up on these guys, and they have a sense of we are in the middle of a German division. There is, we can't do this. We can't accomplish this. He does not have the confidence to say, "Guys, we're turning around." So, and, um. Speaking of British commandos, uh, I know one of the one of the people that you had to kind of cut was Mountbatten. Yeah, <laughs> Lord Lewis Mountbatten. This dude is like the British of all British, right? Uh, he, he is, <laughs> but he's not. Like, the one thing that I thought was uh, interesting about Mountbatten is um, they're Germans. The Mountbatten family they're they're Germans. His his uh, father. I believe it's his father. He uh, becomes the first Lord of the Admiralty, but he's born in Germany. He serves in the German Navy. Um, he doesn't uh, uh, emigrate to uh, England or to the United Kingdom until he's a bit older, and, and then he uh, rises up through the ranks of the British Navy, becomes the first Lord. Um, but Mountbatten, uh, so Prince Philip, mm-hmm. Prince Philip who just passed away, he mm-hmm. was a Mountbatten. So Damn. Lord Louis Mountbatten was his uncle. Check. Yeah, so Mountbatten... Um, I mean, he's a fascinating character. He's he uh, by the time he's put in charge of combined operations headquarters or the 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 entity that uh, commands all British commandos, uh, he's been I think he's been shot out from under two ships or he's had two ships that were sunk 
Um, um, you know, we you you. That's the second time you've made that statement about hey, this guy had two ships shot out from under him. Yeah, and it sounds really cool right now, right? Yeah, right. We're like, damn, you know, because we're like, you know, we think that's kind of cool. But I wonder if there's any <laughs> negative where, where someone's looking at like, dude, this guy's lost two ships, bro. What's wrong with you? Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder. I didn't, I didn't think about. It. Well, he kept getting promoted. Yeah, I mean, he had the political connections. He's he's really young. He's really dynamic. He's one of the few people that. Um, uh, is able to not uh, dominate Churchill, but he's able to. Like Churchill thinks he's just, I mean, he's this cavalier. Um, and so he wait. So he the, he's the one that grew up in Germany. Mm-mm. That's his dad. That's his dad. Yeah. yeah so, Louis Mountbatten. He grows up. He, he's as British as uh, I, I don't know. He's British. He's bro. British, and he seems to have like all the stereotypical kind of British personality. Absolutely. Yeah. He he's he he. Acts British. He, <laughs> yes, he's the. Um, he's. Uh, I mean, he's he's playing polo and writing books yeah, on polo yeah. and stuff like this. I mean, this is it, man. He's he's hanging out with the king and queen. He's got a cigarette holder. I mean, he's he's British. He's the he's the quintessential British. But the commandos themselves, who we who we kind of who we throw in with the sort of who 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 played the biggest role in in. Creating the commandos. creating the British commandos is that is that Clark? Uh, yeah, Dudley Clark. He's the guy who initially comes up with the idea. He's another weirdo. Um, really <laughs> fun to learn about. Really fun to write. He's um, he was a he was a British army officer. He'd grown up, I believe, in Palestine. Uh, he had um, uh, seen um, not only he'd seen um, uh, British raiders during uh, the First World War. He kind of experienced uh, what some of that was like. He, I think he. He was friendly with Ord Wingate. He was um, a uh, uh, um, oh yeah one of the, one of the things one of the ways that he got the idea for British commandos was he was uh, infatuated with the Napoleonic War history, and in fact uh, he was a real student of Wellington's peninsula uh, peninsular wars and all of the uh, partisans that Wellington had uh, hired and. Uh, and sent against the the French forces. Uh, so he, when um, after the disaster at Dunkirk, you know, Dudley Clark, who's a bit you know bit of an oddball in the military uh, hierarchy, I think his hobby is he's a uh, he's an amateur actor, but he puts a little paper together and he sends it up to Churchill, and it's a, the paper is essentially uh, create special troops uh, that are capable. At sea, uh, and send them on all of these little um, uh, raids against the the coastline. Spread out German defenses, not you know dissimilar from what the navy was trying to do in the Central Pacific. Um, Churchill, uh, is the he Churchill's you know completely infatuated with any idea that uh, his generals do not like. <laughs> and this is one of them. He. Um, <laughs> He thinks this is a the great idea, uh, not just because you know this is going to spread German defenses out, but you know more importantly than that, it's going to energize the British people. The British people have just suffered this uh, this terrible um, you know uh, um, defeat at Dunkirk. They need a win. They need a series of wins. Um, so, yeah, uh, he agrees to it. He uh, is um, uh, pushes the entire. Um, uh, British establishment uh, to create these commandos. Uh, what he does not expect, and what his generals don't expect, is that these raids start being successful. 
um, so successful that uh, they they want to develop more of them. And um, so the uh, by ni- by the end of or by 1942, there's not just British commandos at this point. There's Canadian commandos, there's French commandos, and they're all sort of operating under this uh, the COHQ. Um, have you ever read the book Rogue Heroes? It's a book about the uh, British SAS um, no. in uh, North Africa. It follows them all through the war. But, boy, if you want a, a, a book that is kind of outside of, you know, the American special operations experience, um, that is— That's the one? It's it's interesting because, you know, uh, it's even—I would say it's uh, the, the SAS experience, the SAS and the SBS. SBS experience uh, during World War II establishes a um, a type of commando that we're not familiar with, like, and it, it establishes a legacy uh, of expectations that you know we don't really have. Like, our we have sort of a no fail expectations on our commando operations. The SAS, the SBS, they were willing to just try stuff, <laughs> and if they lost an entire team. Well, that's the price of doing business. I mean, and I think they kind of carry that cavalierness through today. Like, I think, I mean, if you've ever worked with SAS or SBS, I'm sure you have. I have, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you noticed that in them. I, I certainly noticed it when we worked with the SBS. These guys are, you know, maybe not uh, as, I wouldn't say they're not. They're less well-trained, but they are willing to, they have an expectation of uh, risk uh, that I was not familiar with. And I think they pull that directly from this experience in World War II. Jack, what else was it that made Dudley Clark an oddball? Um, I mean, the dude's an actor. I mean, we know Echo is a bit of an actor. I don't think he's odd. Really? <laughs> <laughs> was there some other, was there some other uh, thing that dragged you into this uh, or, or that you started getting the feeling this guy's a little strange? Yeah, he leads the first commando raid. Um, and it's a completely, I mean, so he has this idea, you know, not much different than Carlson, you know, to come up with these, you know, commandos, but, and, and like Carlson, he leads one of the first raids and like Carlson, he's completely unsuited to do it. (laughs) Like, I mean, he's not a, he's not an operational commander. He's a thinker. Um, I think he kind of, he suspects that, but he's willing to, (laughs) you know, put himself on the line to prove, you know, his, his ideas. Um, he ends up uh, going through the war and coming up with. Uh, he he ends up being um, uh, a, a really um, capable spy, not spy master, but like deception officer. He's able to convince uh, the Germans at you know different points during the war that we're about to attack in, uh, in in this in this spot, which forces the Germans to move troops to an area. Um, but he leads that first commando raid. Um, and they don't really raid anything. I think they stumble across two German bicyclists. Um, they kill both of them. They forget to search them. They don't know what they were even guarding. And then on his on his particular raid, uh, they one of the one of the guys accidentally uh, ejects a magazine onto a beach right when uh, there's an approaching German patrol. The Germans uh, counter ambush them, and they have to race into the the water to get back to their boats. When they get back to their boats, Dudley Clark realizes that his ear has been almost been shot off, and a uh, a sailor has to stitch it back in place for the transit back to uh, uh, back to England. Damn. 
getting the ear stitched back on by a by a little by a petty officer in right like here. in like a freaking zodiac or something. Yeah, and or the mission is, is so badly planned. When they get when they finally get back uh, to the coast, back to they they didn't have any deconfliction. They get stopped by British uh, shore uh, patrol boats, uh, thinking that they're a German uh, boat, you know, trying to send uh, raiders ashore. Um, and when the and when the um, uh, the coast guard comes aboard their their vessel. Uh, all the British commandos are drunk. <laughs> so not only did they get shot off the beach, they drank the entire boat's liquor supply. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. How about the Devil's Brigade? How does that play into this uh, whole the, scene? The Devil's Brigade, um, they were just one of, they were one of those uh, units that I was really interested in. I really, I was almost trying, like looking for an excuse to, to write about them. They were... Um, they were a unit that uh, was a uh, was a joint um, uh, Canadian and American uh, unit. And it was the kind of the brainchild of Mountbatten. Um, Marshall had buy-in. Uh, it was supposed to be a unit that they dropped into Norway on uh, like snowmobiles or, or snow tractors um, that would lead raids. Uh, ultimately, became a pretty adequate um, uh, semi-commando force. Uh, it was an air uh, sort of sort of ranger, sort of airborne. Um, and Robert Fredericks uh, became the commander of it. And he was uh, as um, as interesting as Darby. Uh, you know, was, um, uh, had you know as equally a storied uh, career. I think he was uh, wounded something like nine times uh, during the course of the war. Um, uh, and what was the? How come the Devil's Brigade didn't sustain? Well, it, I mean the. Army Special Forces, when they are um, when they are claiming uh, their um, their forefathers, they always point to the Devil's Brigade. And I don't really I don't really see a connection between uh, okay. Army Special Forces and the Devil's Brigade. <laughs> Getting heated in here, except for the fact that these guys are in the uh, army. <laughs> well, they're in the army and they're and they're airborne qualified. Check. So, but they are not leading partisans or anything like that. They're shock troops. Um, they're they more were, like rangers then. They're more like rangers, but just like Merrill's Marauders. Merrill's Marauders are, you know, when I set out to write a chapter on the rangers and to talk about uh, how the rangers opened a gap for the Navy to fill, I didn't think that I'd be covering Darby. Other people had covered Darby before, and I was like, I kind of want to avoid that. I'd, I'd rather focus on, you know, a, a, a ranger legacy that has, you know, that's less well-known. And my idea initially was to cover the 5307th, which is Merrill, Merrill's Marauders in Burma. I really wanted to... Um, uh, instead of Cisterna, cover the the Battle of Michkina, which is a an isolated uh, hilltop in Burma that the uh, Merrill's Marauders seize, and there's some you know pretty interesting characters. Merrill, uh, he's a he's another oddball. I think he by that point in the war, he's been removed because he's already had two heart attacks in Burma. <laughs> he stayed in the field, and it was another excuse for you know to talk about Stillwell. Stillwell's another character that I've always you know kind of had a soft spot in my heart for, but. They just didn't fit because, you know, the reason that I had to cover Cisterna, the reason that, that I had to talk about Cisterna as opposed to Point de Hoc or Michkina or another one of these um, really important ranger battles is because Cisterna is the one that leaves its impression on the Army uh, hierarchy, on the chain of command. Um, even when you have a success as incredible as Point de Hoc, even when you have a success as incredible as Cabanatuan and the rescue of all those POWs, it doesn't leave its legacy or it doesn't leave an impression on uh, the army chain of command like Cisterna does. Cisterna clouds an entire generation of hostility, uh, of 
regular conventional army leaders to the concept of elite commandos, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely that that section of the book. Um, and again, I read it on the last the last time we were together on this podcast. Um, it's just it's 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 very difficult. It's still it's difficult to even read. And yeah. and what's incredible about it is it's it's the notes from the radio room. These are these are transcripts of what was actually said between Darby and his frontline leadership, who are being overrun and slaughtered. And you can. You can read exactly what they were saying to each other. It's um, yeah. another just incredible. A lot of that. A lot of that's taken from, um, you know, like like you said, the transcripts. Which I, that's one of the few times that I was at an archive, going through it, uh, going through a document, and not just you know quickly taking a, a photo and moving on. That was one of those times where I was like, I was trying. I mean, I knew what happened, and I'm, I was reading it like it was a novel, like, and I was you know tensing up like. You know, knowing what each page that each page was going to get worse and worse and worse, and that I was, I was watching this unfold in an archive, you know, eighty years after the fact. But it was, you know, it was every bit as real to me. Well, maybe not every bit as real, but you know, you're these are, you know, fellow fellow Americans, you know, doing the absolute best they could for their country for each other, and and you know, the guy on the other end of the radio was watching his friends die around him. And then before we move to chapter four, what about what about Charles Shunstrom? What's that guy's deal? He got cut completely out of the book. Is that right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, he got um, so he he's responsible for writing the Shunstrom report, which is the uh, it was it was the report written um, only uh, well. If I do the math right, probably a month after Cisterna. So he's one of um, He's one of the guys that was captured uh, in the in the in the final moments of the the raid. He was um, he had been with Darby all the way through uh, the 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 Rangers experience. So he'd been one of the handful of Rangers trained by the British commandos in Achnacarry, Scot- Scotland. Um, fought through North Africa, fought through Sicily, uh, fought through uh, Italy, the Winter Line. Uh, and then he's one of the uh, officers. Uh, captured. He's one. He's the officer who's driving Darby uh, in Jaila when Darby is in the back uh, with a 50 cal or with the uh, uh, the recoilless rifle and destroys the Italian tank that turns Darby from Darby into Darby the legend. So he's with Darby uh, throughout. You know the uh, everything. He's he's as you know he's he's as incredible or as anyway. He he's captured um, at Cisterna. Uh, escapes two weeks later, um, uh, makes it back to friendly lines, uh, and from from his escape, he's able to write this report of what actually happened. He's one of the few guys that got out, and he drafts this, uh, I can't remember, the 10-page report. So a lot of what's in those final pages uh, is, is drawn from the Shunstrom report. Now, he has a uh, a, a really tragic end to his life. He, um, I can't remember how he passes away. I think he's dead within ten years, though, of uh, of this event. He, uh, after World War II, he, um, I think he goes to Southern California. He tries to be an actor, doesn't work out, and then he, you know, turns to drink, uh, and a series of bad decisions leads to a series of worse decisions. And I think he starts robbing banks. Um, he's one of those guys that you know. He just isn't able to reintegrate into society. He'd been an, a ranger officer, one of the you know guys in charge, and here he is. He's not able to you know um, uh, 
reintegrate mm-hmm. into you know polite society and he ultimately I, I can't remember how he dies but I think it, it's some combination of alcohol and um, the, yeah some combination of alcohol robbing banks guns just getting yeah. after it yeah you know this it's pretty good you gotta kind of ask yourself and I, I had a conversation with someone the other day about you know that just like modern times and all this Who's going to fight the wars? Yeah. Right? Who is going to put freaking black paint on their face and pick up a weapon and crawl across the beach and start killing enemy? Like, that's a certain type of human being, right? That's the type of human being that may not correctly reintegrate into society. This dude might end up robbing banks when he gets back. But. it's the Martin Watson problem. Yeah, it's the Martin Watson problem, which we'll get to. But but we, we do have to think about that. And and when you have guys, you know, we, we talked about obedience as a characteristic being, look, it's, it, is it good to have some obedience? Yes, it is. And was Darby maybe too far on the spectrum of being too obedient? Yes. But then you get some other guys that are on the other end of the spectrum that you want. You want to have someone that's going to be like, hey, I don't care what you tell me to do. I'm going to go attack this machine gun nest. Get out of my way. You want to have some guys like that. They're hard to control. But if you get rid of these guys, if you get rid of the Charles Shunstroms and the Watsons, you get rid of those guys, your military is not going to be able to function, in my opinion. It's not going to be able to win. It's okay. Yep, you're right. It's not. It's going to be able to function. It's probably going to be able to function very effectively in a peacetime environment. So but, my question, you've commanded these guys. How, how, I mean, what, what's the answer? How do you, how do you, you know, take the strengths? Of a of a Shunstrom or a Watson, um, but how do you make sure that they don't go off the rails? Yeah, you, what you have to do is you have to put put the put the guardrails in place, and you have to. And it's not. Here's the the interesting thing about this. This isn't that hard. This isn't where you've got to be constantly monitoring every single thing that they do. You have a good relationship with your guys, then when you say, "Hey, listen, here's the line. We're not crossing it." Guys go, "Yep, Roger that," and they know you're not playing around. They you haven't. You haven't uh, uh, shown them where, hey, you know, Jocko says this, but he doesn't really mean that. No, it's like when I say something, this is what I mean, and this is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. And and look, I mean, I had guys that were definitely actually. I want to have guys just like I just said. I want to have guys that can say, hey, if I can get it, if I get the chance to do this in a hyper aggressive way, I'm going to do it. You, you give me a chance to kill the enemy, I'm going to do it. That's what I'm gonna do. That's what I'm here for. That's why. That's why I was born, dude. Tony Afratti. You know Tony Afratti? Tony was a platoon chief in Charlie Platoon, Task Unit Bruiser. I, if he would do anything to be able to go out and kill the enemy, and he would also never cross the line of like, oh, okay, hey, we're not doing that. Cool. That's what, that. Then that's the line, and that's exactly what you want. Um, and and what? So so the question that you pose to me: How do you do it? What you do is you have a good relationship with the guys. You explain to them what we can do, what we can't do, and then you explain why we can't do it. And there was um, uh, I used to go and brief the Jotsi classes, the the junior officer training classes, and and you briefed mine. Okay, well there there you go. One of the things that I used to tell these guys was, hey, listen, when it comes to when it comes to the rules of engagement, when it comes to the law of armed conflict, you have to not just do what you think is right. 
you have to do what you think what you have to do not just what is you think is right but what is legal and here's the reason and and Leif had to have this conversation Leif had a senior officer in the room when I was explaining this to these young guys like yourself that what's what people think is right what you you take 16 seals and you say you give them a case example of is this right in your own personal moral code you're going to get 16 different answers you're going to get some guys that say, oh, yeah, this, this, this person's an insurgent, we'll kill him. Or this person's an insurgent, oh, well, we, we, should, we shouldn't hurt him because we can reform him. You can have all these kind of wild different answers. So what you, the only thing you can actually follow isn't what an individual, quote, thinks is right. You have to follow what is actually legal. And I made that, I always made that very clear with my guys. Hey, listen, this is what you can do. This is what you cannot do. And here's why. And of course, in any leadership situation, it's important to explain the why. And, you know, for instance, in Ramadi, there was a bunch of reasons why you can't go out and shoot an innocent person. Well, first of all, yeah, it's morally wrong. Second of all, everyone would know about it immediately. So it's not like it's not like I could have a sniper going, oh, you know, I'll sneak in a shot over here and no one's gonna know. No, we're in a city with 400,000 Iraqi civilians that we, there's a mayor, there's a police force, there's a, there's a governor, there's a whole, there's teachers and doctors inside that city. You kill an innocent civilian, everybody's gonna know about it. And by the way, all those Iraqi government officials they have relationships with the brigade commanders, with the battalion commanders, with the company commanders. We're all talking. So if you think, oh, I'm, I'm gonna shoot some innocent person, get away with it, you're never gonna get away with it. It's not happening. And on top of that, we are now losing the war. When you go out and kill an innocent civilian, you're giving, you're giving propaganda to the enemy. And you're creating more insurgents by killing an innocent person. So you have to not just explain, hey, legally you can't do this, but also here's why you can't do it. Uh, I was speaking to a group of army leaders one time, and I, I said, hey, in any, in any platoon, you're gonna have a sociopath in there. You're gonna have somebody that's, you give them the opportunity to kill, or maybe even you don't, they might take advantage of that. They're gonna look for an opportunity to kill. They're gonna look for an opportunity to torture someone. They're gonna look for an opportunity to rape a woman. Like, you take, a platoon, you're gonna have that in there. And I got some looks from the crowd kind of like, oh, that's not that's not realistic. And and n- no kidding, two weeks later, I was uh, doing a podcast with Jordan Peterson. And before we started recording, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Here's what I told this group of army guys. I said, in your platoon, you're gonna have at least one person that's a sociopath. Is that an accurate statement? And he says, how many people in a platoon? I'm like, well, in a platoon, 40, 50, um, and he goes, oh, you know, and, and I won't try and imitate Jordan Peterson, but he, you know, he basically, like, oh yes, definitely. And, and then he said, because it's like one in a hundred in normal society that you have a sociopath, but the, the army or the Marine Corps is not normal society. You've already screened out a bunch yeah. of pacifists, right? right? You've already screened out a bunch of people that, that are definitely not sociopaths. And so to have, you probably actually have two or three sociopaths inside your platoon. And, and, and then look, you also get some guys that just, you know, like, like Shunstrom, he's not necessarily a sociopath, but maybe, you know, who knows how this guy was raised. Maybe occasionally right. somebody gets smacked around, you know, occasionally you beat someone up. Um, violence is part of, you know, culture in some 
parts of America, in some families in America. Like that's what you grew up with, so that's what you get. So to, to uh, once again to answer your question, you got to put you got to put the very clear guardrails in place that say, hey, look, this is what we're doing, this is what we're not doing, and then you have to have the the consistency that when you say something the guys know that you are not playing around and that you are gonna follow through with whatever it is you say. And, and, and I think where guys get caught sometimes from a leadership perspective is they don't put out those guardrails. And then when Ben crosses the line and you do something you weren't supposed to do, I feel kind of bad because I didn't even tell you not to do it. Hmm. So I'm looking at you going, well, I, I guess I'm gonna you know, send you to court martial now. And you're going, wait a second. You know, we killed three guys on that last operation and four guys on the operation before that. Now you're mad at me because I killed somebody? Well, what were the circumstances? Well, I, you didn't talk to me about any circumstances. Well, you got to know the rules of engagement. Well, I know the rules of engagement that seem like that way to me. So you see where I'm going with this. I have to be very clear about what the line is and why we cannot cross it. It also seems like, um, like in an extreme team environment, mm-hmm. like I said, like in football, it seemed like there were, there were some sociopaths there too. And actually, yeah. I, I actually know of one who's mm-hmm. I think he's still in jail right now. But he um, in an, uh, t- an extreme team environment, it's like people who are just normal people who are I'm down for the team. They get influenced just to do stuff, good mm-hmm. and bad, just because of the team environment. Do you find that a lot? hundred percent. Where it's like, I mean, actually, you know what? Now that I'm thinking of like the, the massacres, certain yeah, massacres. Yeah, for like, sure. You know, I mean, the, I'm asking, that's definitely what happened. Like, oh, that's what we're doing? Okay, we're, we're ready for it. You know, I've been talking a lot about this lately is just the fact that people, human beings are so, so their brains are so pliable. You can program a, a person so easily to believe whatever. And by the way, it's happening all day long right now with all these people out there that are looking at their social media all day long. That's, they're getting programmed. You're getting programmed. Yeah. You're receiving information. You don't even know what you're, you're seeing, and it, it's happening right now. You know the, the the propaganda that's coming out from both sides from from Ukraine, right? It's, it's like all, you have people going high into the right on whatever image that they saw, and you got to take everything that's coming out of there with a grain of salt. But what it's showing you is how easily influenced human beings are, and that's a really negative thing. But it's also a really positive thing yeah. because you, as a leader, have the ability to say, "Hey, here's what's going on." Here's what we need to do. Here's why we need to do it. Here's why we can go to this line and we can't go past it. And those are the rules. That's that's what you need to do. If you start to allow slack and then you develop a habit of allowing slack, you're going to have a freaking issue. You're going to have you're going to you're going to end up with issues. If you don't have the ability to say, "Hey, listen, dude, this is not we're not doing that." Uh one thing that's interesting in the in the SEAL teams is most of the guys want to do a good job and have a good reputation. So when you say, hey, hey Ben, we're not doing that. Or hey Ben, it looks seemed like you were thinking about doing something, let me tell you why we're not doing it. You don't go, it's bullshit. No, you go, yeah, I got it boss, thanks for explaining that to me. It, it, it's not that hard. But if I'm weak, and you know that you end up with that dynamic in the military where you have a really strong personality. Or a really strong chief. Or really, yeah, really strong, and a, and, a, and a brand new officer. Yep, and if if that that can that, that's a classic scenario, right? right? That's the that's the damn platoon, right? That's the the movie platoon, right? You have you have uh, Barnes, and you have whatever that officer's name was, and he just gets run roughshod over by Barnes, and 
That's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. Hey, you're a new guy. Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. This is the only way to win this. Okay, well, yes, sir. Or yes, yes, Sergeant Barnes. And then you have a guy like Elias who is saying, hey, but what are you, what are you doing? But he doesn't have the strength to back it up to, and to, to get his platoon officer on board with what's happening. So it's a classic thing to watch out for, 100%. Um, all right, let's jump back into the book here. Go a little bit more forward, go into chapter four. Chapter four. <sighs> Draper Kaufman and the course that cracked the Atlantic wall then laid the first bricks of the legends of Navy, of the legend of Navy special warfare. So there you go. Um, and this, this really, you should have, you should have saved that dramatic, you know, Intake for the last chapter. Uh, that's the longest one. They, they, they get, there's only one that's short. There's only one more that's coming that's short. Um, I'm going to read a little chunk from the book here. Landing at 0625, one of the earliest crews to arrive, Gregory and the Army engineers had dragged their rubber boat into the surf, lashed it to a wooden stake, and run for the farthest belt of hedgehogs. It looked impossible to be there without being hit. One of Karnowski's men remembered afterward. It looked even worse without a helmet. Despite the chaos, Karnowski and the demolitioners laid their charges, ran out their primer cord, tied in, and blew their charge. The first shot was magnificent, remembered one man. After it, nothing else was. As soon as the charge blew, machine guns opened up from everywhere and men pushed their bellies into the sand. Conrad Millis, a quiet California carpenter, made chief petty officer for the example he had set during training, grabbed the primer, grabbed the primer cord reel and sprinted for the next row of obstacles. He was identified later by the pack of explosives around his neck with a big hole in his chest. As the waves of infantry landed, the demolition job grew even more complicated. Terrified soldiers either did not notice the purple smoke warnings swirling around them or did not care. I thought I'd never get one of the infantrymen out from behind a piling, a demolitioner confessed later. He moved out just in time and our second shot went off. As obstacles blew apart, the Army and Navy sections began working together, mingling as a single team, regardless of the advancing tide. Lieutenant Gregory, having destroyed the tank crippling hedgehogs at the far end of the beach, turned away from the enemy and splashed back into the surf. Like a man possessed, he waded or swam to each remaining stake, where he waited until someone threw him a charge. Then, using the lessons taught to him by the NCDUs, stretched his arms as far as they would reach and placed his bomb next to Rommel's, then blew them to nothing. So, D-Day, um, you, you, you talk about this being the most consequential day in, in the history of NSW. There's 100 and Navy, 190 Navy demolitioners, 32 of them are killed, 65 are wounded. So that's a total number of casualties being at 97. This is 51%, 51% casualties. Yeah, I mean, just in contribution or just in sacrifice, it's uh, um, it outmatches any other uh, tragedy or um, that NSW has experienced. It's 
uh, far um, uh, far exceeds anything, at, at least in any single day experience. And this happens um, mostly in the space of, uh, of around three or four hours. Uh, gap assault teams um, uh, three and fourteen, eleven, uh, they're all destroyed even before. I mean, right, eleven's uh, destroyed as soon as its ramp drops. Three and fourteen are destroyed, uh, destroyed before their ramps even drop. There, they with mortars, mortars, mortars and uh, just about everybody in, uh, aboard is killed. Um, it's the it's the most important day of the twentieth century. I mean, it's the day that determines um, uh, whether or not Hitler is going to be removed from the continent. Um, and it's uh, it's tough to you know write this chapter and not make it you know outshine everything else. It's a um, it's it's too much. The chapter was twice as long when I uh, you know when I finished the first draft. It was uh, I, I I wanted to I didn't want to leave anything behind. I wanted uh, you know every every gap assault team every uh, every NCDU to you know have full representation. I think there's 21 um, gap assault teams that, that land. I ultimately had to, you know, cut, 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 and try and, you know, consolidate as much as possible just so it was a readable chapter. And I also had to, like, you know, figure out what, what the hell am I trying to say in this thing? You know, I, I expected that um, writing a history of the SEAL teams or writing how the Navy had you know, been the first to create this type of unit, I always expected that it'd be tough to justify how I put the you know, the Army or Marine Corps chapters in, and it wouldn't be tough to, you know, justify the Navy chapters. The Navy chapters would just sort of write themselves. I just had to say, what happened? Just say, what happened? Uh, I found the opposite to be true because, you know, it was, you know, with the Army chapters and the Marine Corps chapters, all you're really just, you know, trying to show, like, why these units failed or why they, um, why the, you know, their uh, um, senior leaders pulled the rug out from under them. With the Navy chapters, you're, you're having to, you know, show how, um, you know, a unit like the NCDUs, which is, you know, created just to solve one problem, and that problem is the obstacles in France or the obstacles on the coast. How did that, why is that relevant, you know, to the ultimate creation of go anywhere, you know, naval commandos? So I, um, it took a long time, and it took multiple drafts before I realized that the point of this whole thing or the, the relevance to that story is not so much, um, you know, the fact that they were, uh, you know, just blowing up obstacles. It's the fact that they left such an impression on the Navy's leaders um, after that. And, you know, there's you know, there's all these um, you know episodes of, of naval bravery. You know, the, there's the experience of the uh, um, of the of the, the destroyers that ultimately save the day that push the army ashore. These destroyers, you know, they're um, they're on the outskirts of uh, of the battle until um, Admiral Hall. Uh, uh, the, the army, the army is looking at what's happening on Omaha Beach. There's there's successful landings on Gold Sword and Juno. There's successful landings at Utah Beach. Everywhere the you know the the um, the landing to get troops ashore on D-Day is going well, except here at Omaha. In Omaha, you know the army commanders like I, we might need to pull our troops off. They might need to do something that they've never trained to do, which is a full scale evacuation in front of the enemy. Admiral Hall, who has um, made it a point to make sure that he's in charge of the invasion until the forces are firmly established ashore says, no, we're not doing that. And he does what you know nobody has done up to that point, which is push 
uh, destroyers right up to the uh, to the, the as close to the coast as possible. He pushes them 800 yards away uh, from from the coast. That's These insane. Destroyers they they come in at flank speed, and as soon as they get to about uh, where their hulls are about three feet off the bottom, they all turn left and they all start going right along the coast. So you have all this bravery that happens. As soon as they get you know, to a point to the end of Omaha Beach, you think all these ships are going to turn, um, and some of them do. Some of them have enough uh, uh, um, um, depth where they're able to turn around. The ships that don't, they just, they just reverse, reverse uh, uh, and, and they just start going backwards, and they're you know, blasting uh, away at these uh, pillboxes and structures. And some, in some cases, they are... Um, they're blasting underneath uh, the pillboxes, so the pillboxes full of Germans just start tumbling off the uh, uh, off the escarpment. Um, so in all, I don't that think I've seen that represented. No, it in no. like in Saving Private Ryan or anything like that. No, and everybody eight hundred yards off the beach yeah. is freaking close. Everybody walks away, or everybody you know comes away from you know the reading of Omaha Beach uh, as this uh, um, as this victory of uh, of American infantry over you know the German obstacles, um, and that's true. But there's also another truth, and that's the um, uh, that's the commitment, or that's the force that the Navy brought to bear on that day, and the and the Army would not have gotten off those killing fields or off those killing beaches without the contribution of the U.S. Navy. But what? I found was the point of this chapter was that with all of that, with all of the, 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 the contribution that the Navy had made, with all the bravery, um, the, the Navy uh, walks away from that battle uh, with knowing that the, the greatest contribution that they'd given that day was with the Naval, or with, the, with the NCDUs, with the Naval Combat Demolition Units. Um, they are awarded, you know, uh, some, uh, six Navy crosses. Um, uh, more silver stars than you can shake a stick at. They've got uh, they they award uh, the NCDUs only one of three uh, presidential unit citations that are awarded from uh, a naval unit on Omaha Beach. Um, right. So the reason that that's so important is because uh, when the Navy when the dust settles uh, and the and the Navy is looking at you know their entire contribution uh, at Omaha Beach, they know that. Uh, they know how important the NCD's comp- contribution was, and more importantly, they know how important uh, the na- the curriculum was that created these units. And that curriculum, I don't know if anybody uh, in charge of Omaha Beach had realized what curriculum had created them, but there are people that know, and that curriculum is now um, validated because of, uh, of everything the NCDUs did. And that curriculum, as you know, you know, developed by Draper Kaufman. Yeah, and the main part of that curriculum is Hell Week. Yeah, the the crucible of that curriculum is Hell Week, and the, and and the reason that it's it's developed is because you know, it's the closest thing, or the least Draper Kaufman had ever uh, come in contact with to combat. I mean, it's a, um, it, it at least it matches the experience that Draper Kaufman had had when it came to. Uh, combat. He'd been in, you know, we can get to Draper Kaufman, but um, it prepared the guys that went to Omaha Beach uh, for exactly what they experienced. You know, they were um, they were wet, they were cold. I mean, they they'd spent almost forty eight hours on on ships that were, you know, often some of these ships were sinking uh, prior to. Or they were so overwhelmed with uh, with water and rain and um, 
uh, that, you know, they went into battle cold, uh, hungry. Um, often, you know, nearly all of them were seasick. Uh, they're all wrenching their guts out so they don't have anything in them when they hit the beaches. Um, and then the, uh, the chaos that unfolds around them is uh, they've, they've gotten at least a taste of it uh, on the beaches at Fort Pierce. They, you know, you know, the, the Sosali day, I mean, they'd been uh, peppered with all these bombs going off around them. Um, they were probably better prepared for what, uh, what they encountered than any other troops on Omaha Beach. Yeah, the the Hell Week thing is definitely interesting. Um, because it is it's shocking when you when you when you look at it and you know the kind of people that show up. Just the numbers of people that show up. I mean, a class will start with a couple hundred people, and by the time they're done with Hell Week, they'll be down to ten, fifteen, twenty percent of that. And these are people that enlisted in the Navy that had a goal that told their families they were going to be Navy SEALs that dedicated six years of their life to signing that dotted line. They trained, they worked, they went to boot camp, they gave up whatever other possibilities they had in life and they poured all that into this one singular dream. Without a fallback plan, too. With no, with the crappiest fallback. There's a fallback plan. It just sucks. It sucks. But, I mean, it's not like if you go to the Marine Corps like, and you don't you know, get into oh, MARSOC, oh, yeah. you could still be a pretty awesome Marine. Yeah, you're a freaking infantryman in the Marine Corps, which is a beautiful thing. And same thing with the Army, special operations. So you don't make it through special forces training? Okay, cool. You're a freaking ground pounder, which is awesome. The Navy, you don't make it through SEAL training? And if you have the mindset where you want to be some kind of a machine gun toting badass, well, guess what? You don't make it through SEAL training. You are literally not going to be a machine gun toting badass at all. And, and, and that's a horrible, a horrible fate for these young guys. But they know that, that that's their fate. And yet with that fate, they still ring that bell. And people from every background, people that were division one athletes of every division one athlete, wrestlers, football players, uh, you name it, swimmers, runners, they all quit. People that were you know, raised with a silver spoon in their mouth that went to Ivy League schools, they quit. People that were raised in the ghetto with really hard lives, they quit. Some of them make it, some of them quit. Same with the Ivy League, some of them make it, some of them quit. It's a crazy crucible and, and we still don't even understand it. We don't understand who's gonna make it. No, I think the only thing that we, we really know is where it came from. That's about it and we don't, and. I mean, as much as Draper Kaufman wrote, and I came, I mean, when I, so I went to his daughter's house in uh, Indiana, and uh, um, she let me have, you know, two days just to go through this entire, this humongous file cabinet. He kept everything. And I, there was letters, I mean, tons of letters between, you know, him, family members, friends. Um, the one thing that he never really kind of um, talked about at least contemporaneously, he only really talked about it in his oral history, was this, you know, this Hell Week that he invented. I mean, and nobody really, I mean, all the guys that went through it talked about it. He didn't even talk about, you know, his own experience going through it. So after he created Hell Week, and he didn't really create Hell Week, all he did was compress, you know, that uh, that curriculum that, you know, Phil Bucklew mm-hmm. and all those other scouts and raiders, they established it. All Draper Kaufman did was like, okay, I like this. This is eight weeks long. That's great. Let's put it in. Let's make all this five days. It's like, how are you going to do that? Well, you're just going to cut out all the stuff that you don't need, like, you know, like sleep. <laughs> we'll just, you know, keep, keep the guy. And he did it himself. I mean, he yeah. not only, you know, 
creates this, he puts himself through the training. At 32 years old. Yeah, 32 And he's a terrible athlete. He's a terrible athlete. (laughs) He's a terrible swimmer. He can't can't qualify. I mean, his his eyesight, he can't even qualify for the standards that he sets for himself or sets for the program. Like he would not be, he would not qualify for, you know, the course that he creates. Then he does it. Uh, you visited, did you, you visited where? Omaha Beach, you visited uh, yeah. Fort Pierce. Yeah. How was yeah. that with the, with the breadth of knowledge that you have when you're down there? It's incredible. Um, it's, um, there's nothing quite like, you know, going to the places that you're writing about. Uh, if I could have gone, I wish I could have gone to every single place that I, I wrote about. I've, I've, and I've kind of made it a mental mandate for me. If, uh, future books, I'm, I'm never going to write about anything unless I go to the place. Um, the, uh, there's a way to Omaha. I mean, there's a way to, you know, all of, all of Normandy. And um, I mean, you, I'm not sure uh, which point you you should go to the cemetery at Omaha Beach. If you should go to the cemetery first before you go to the beachheads and before you go to all the battlefields and Point to Hawk, or if you should go see the battlefields and Point to Hawk and everything and then go to the cemetery. Either way, um, you're going to that cemetery and you're going to walk around it. And the the one thing that you're going to see, and there's a a poem by Robert Frost before you go into that cemetery, and it said something like, you know, uh, don't talk. Um, just listen. Just look, and uh, note the dates on these he- uh, headstones. And, uh, note how young they were, and they died for you. And it's it's overwhelming. And then to take that, and then to go see the places where all of these guys were. You see Dog Green, Dog Red, and all the all the beaches. And then you go to Point to Hawk. You can't even look over the cliffs. I mean, look. You see where these rangers they climbed up like and I mean the Germans at the top are cutting ropes and they're throwing grenades and they're leaning over the cliffs and they're machine gunning them off the ropes and still they came Um, and the the section that you read of uh, Karnowski uh, (laughs) he dropped his helmet in the water before you know the the operation even started before the you know the um, before the ramp even dropped he did not have a helmet and he you know spent he ran you know from I mean, and and who, where was he going to get a helmet? Everybody else needed their helmet. There's no other helmets to take. And he, you know, ran, ran ashore and um, wasn't able to get a helmet. You know, for almost 24 hours, he finally finally found a helmet that wasn't attached to somebody that uh, he was able to take. But yeah. And how about Fort Pierce? Fort Pierce is really something. Um, the, we can the, talk about Fort Fort Pierce a bit later. There's a. Uh, I uh, recently went to uh, Fort Pierce for their, their annual muster. and um, But, yeah, I, I, Fort Pierce was one of the first places I went. And um, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand, like, uh, what the island was like, what the, what the separation of Hutchinson Island was, because Fort Pierce is the actual town. It's on the mainland where Hutchinson Island, where, you know, that's what we colloquial call, or that's what we call, um, you know, Fort Pierce. It's actually two separate islands. There's, it's an intercoastal uh, island that separates, you know, from the Indian River and the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic is, you know, kind of a crushing surf, and you can see all the rocks that are there. I mean, um, the the idea of uh, rock portage and everything like that. We all, we, you know, it's, you know, we always think of it as, you know, right there at the at Hotel, Hotel Dell. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you get this fairy tale hotel, you know, and and, and these, you know, you know, jagged, you know, humongous, you know, rocks. Um, they have the exact same rocks 
uh, right there at Fort Pierce, and they did the exact same rock portage. And it was just as dangerous then as it is now. Um, but you, you, you can see it. I mean, you, uh, you can see, you know, this is the birthplace. This is where it all happened. And it wasn't just the birthplace of, you know, the NCDUs and the Scouts and Raiders, but it was the birthplace of, you know, kind of uh, American special operations thinking. Everybody took a turn at Fort Pierce. Anybody who was going to do any sort of amphibious training, any special unit, was going to take a stop at Fort Pierce. The Rangers, the, uh, uh, the Army Raiders that, uh, that, that uh, you know, uh, went up the Cebu River on the Dallas. They all, everybody, everybody uh, took a turn through Fort Pierce. It was the... Um, um, it was the garden bed of, uh, of special operations thinking at the time. So, um, yeah, and if you, you might just mention the, the UDT seal museum, which is down there in Fort Pierce and it's freaking unbelievable. It and is an awesome, really... awesome thing that they're continuing to build down there. Yeah. Um, couldn't have done the book without it. Oh, really? Like as far as them giving you information and pointing you in the right direction, you know, it was the first place that I went to. And it was, um, um, and this was, I, I went there before I even knew what an archive was. And their archive is, um, it's not, it's not really an art. I mean, it's a, it's a room with a, a bunch of file cabinets in it. And the first time that I went in there, you know, nobody, um, uh, nobody told me what I couldn't look at. I mean, I just, I just went in there with a the camera and. You know, I got to work. I didn't know where World War II was. I didn't know where Korea was, Vietnam, uh, but it's all in there. And I was gathering stuff that, you know, um, I didn't know what I was looking at. I took a thousand pictures away my first day at an archive, and it took me a month to go through them and just to sort of, you know, figure out this is this, this is that. You know, this is a this is an operations plan for Okinawa. This is a, you know, this is an op order for, um, you know, a train demolition raid in Korea or something like that. I mean, um but yeah, it, that was the first time that I, you know, really kind of got the evidence of the cold case mystery that I was trying to, you know, sort out. Um, all right, let's move on to, and again, uh, I've already told you, if you're listening to this, to buy this book and to do it as quickly as you possibly can. Um, we're literally just hitting wave tops on this stuff. There's so much incredible information. Obviously, D-Day. I mean, we, I read one. I read two paragraphs about D-Day. There's the entire entire incredible section about all of it. About Draper Kaufman, who we we covered him a lot on the first the first time you were on because he's such a he's such an incredible character. He's not the guy that you would think created or was one of the one of the lead role players in creating this organization that we have. Um, he's. A guy, and you know, you, you know what you pointed out on that first podcast is he's a guy that was he, he didn't really want to be he didn't want to be some kind of commando. He wanted to be a, a, a naval officer that was in charge of a ship, and it just wasn't going to happen for him. His eyesight was bad; it wasn't going to happen. And he just made things happen. He looked around and said, "All right, well, what can I do? And what does the military need? What does the?" What does the what does the the, the fighting people need? Because he wasn't necessarily going to work for America either. He was like, "Who's fighting? I'm in." Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, for anybody who's trying to be a SEAL right now, I mean, you, whether you succeed or whether you don't, I mean, there's so many ways to serve your country. I mean, here's a guy who spent four years at the Naval Academy hoping to fulfill his dream to be a destroyer uh, sailor. He wants to just be on a destroyer. That's all he wants, and it's you know the. Rugs pulled out from under him right at the moment he's he's ready to take the fleet, and he's got to come up with Plan B, 
He doesn't know what plan B is going to be, but he doesn't, you know, let that paralyze him. He, when he doesn't see um, a way to contribute to his country, he makes one up, <laughs> and then he makes one up again. The, the thing that just keeps the, the, his guiding star in that whole process is just like, I want to be useful. I want to, I want to, you know, help, and I want to be as close uh, as I can to, you know, to that, to that help. And if I can, you know, if I can't fight. Then I'll carry, I'll carry stretchers. I'll be an ambulance driver. Mm-hmm. If I can't uh, uh, be an RAF pilot, or if I can't be on a British ship, then I will uh, dispose the bombs that are landing in central London. If I can't uh, be a ship driver in the U.S. Navy, then I will teach the rest of the Navy how to dismantle bombs. I'll do whatever I can. And then when he's uh, anyway, yeah, that's it's an incredible, incredible story uh, that. It's just crazy. It's crazy to think. He's a, he j- becomes a French ambulance driver and then becomes a British naval officer. And then finally, they eventually let him into the U.S. Navy. That's re- crazy. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, like, like for somebody, and, and, his, and his dad is one of the most famous destroyer skippers in the Navy. And his dad, I mean, who clearly loves his son, because, I mean, you see the. You see the paralysis in his, you know, like we talked about last time, the paralysis and uh, the letters between the two. Like he knows that his son's going to be committed or sent on these, you know, terribly dangerous uh, missions. Uh, it's never been done before. Like when before Draper Kaufman heads out uh, with UDT-5 uh, to scout the beaches uh, for Saipan, his dad knows that these guys are going into combat with nothing. And the letters are, you know, he signs them off, you know, just the same way, you know, anybody any any other dad would you know i love you lots and lots of luck and that's all i can do like that's all i can do for you he's not going to intercede on his son's behalf craziness um chapter five the evolving contest that created the mermen of <laughs> war world war ii's only indispensable special operations unit so we we, we have that controversy about the mermen yes we don't really like that term. We don't. But it's got it's what got used, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, they used it. I mean, they that's the, I think that was the the Wrigley Spearmint Gum uh, hour that was on the radio. I mean, that's where it came. Oh, that's from. where it came from. They yeah, called they them came, the they mermen. called the mermen of war. Yeah. <sighs> Unfortunate little piece of history, but we can't change it. All right, <laughs> going to the book here real quick. In the in the late summer of 1943, right about the same time that Draper Kaufman was putting himself through Hell Week, U.S. commanders in the Pacific were about to initiate two campaigns with one ultimate objective: the ob- the invasion of Japan. Blocked by a swath of ocean five times the size of the Sahara and whose every atoll had been turned into a Japanese fortress, the strategy to accomplish this objective was one in which the Allies would leapfrog most islands, especially the most robustly defended, let them wither on the vine, said Douglas MacArthur, and seize a handful upon which they could build airfields substantial enough to support the long-range four-engine bombers needed to soften up the next handful on the way to mainland Japan. In the South Pacific, this path would progress from the mountainous jungles of Guadalcanal to a nearby group of similar islands, many well-charted and populated, and all of them battlefields large enough for the U.S. Army's and MacArthur's ambitions. 
in the Central Pacific. This path would start some 2,000 miles west of Hawaii in the Gilbert Island chain, the first lily pads large enough to support bomber-sized airfields, but so small, so remote, so daunting, that their volcanic spines of white sand and green palms could almost be mistaken for the rigid backs of a thousand sea monsters. And there was only one branch of service that could lead the hunt against those, the same branch that would go on to break Hitler's Atlantic Wall, but employing an altogether different kind of method. Indeed, a method unlike any in military history. So you're setting us up pretty strong there, right? For this, t- well, I had this to make up a- for the merman. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. This is the first time the Navy's kind of the master of the battle space. First time in history. And that's going to play into a significant role because we need to get onto these islands. Yeah. We need to figure out how to get onto these islands. And there's this weird little gap, this weird little gap of information, this weird little gap of tactical control mm-hmm. that no one really knows how to fill. Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the myth behind Tarawa? The Tarawa is um, every history that I'd ever read about uh, the SEAL teams starts with a, uh, a vignette about Tarawa. Um, and that uh, Tarawa is this um, is this meat grinder battle in 1943 um, in which the Marines, uh, they take this island in the Central Pacific. Um, and in three days, the Marines lose as many men as they've lost in the entire six-month battle for Guadalcanal. It's, it's, it's the first time that Americans realize that this is going to be uh, this is going to be something. This is going. This is like the Shiloh moment in the Civil War, where uh, Americans realize this is going to be. Everybody is terrible. It, it's going to be a, a, a monster, um, and you're going to have to do this on island, on every island across uh, the Pacific to get to Japan. If we're going to uh, carry this, you know, FDR's uh, policy of uh, unconditional surrender uh, against the Japanese, this it's going to be a bloody, bloody uh, battle or bloody way to do it. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, part of the reason that Tarawa was such a meat grinder is because the landing craft couldn't get past the coral reefs, which is true. Uh, the landing craft couldn't get uh, past the coral reefs, and that's going to be a problem on every subsequent battle. Uh, but the Marines had already anticipated that. The Navy had already anticipated that, and they had fielded a new technological solution to overcome it, which was the LVT, or the amphibious tractor. Uh, it wasn't a landing craft as much as it was, um, you know, a, a tractor that could float. And as soon as it got tank. to the yeah, coral, it would just crawl right over it. I think they brought 125 um, to Tarawa. Um, there, I think there's only a handful left by the end of the first day. Uh, the rest are you know, technologically they're broke. They're, they're broken. Um, so the the subsequent days, uh, the only Marines that can land to support um, are you know they're kept on the outskirts of the the battle uh, by this coral reef. So they have to you know drive up the Higgins boats. They drop their ramps. The Marines rush out into the coral and they jump into the lagoon. And then they've got this three thousand yard wade to shore where they've got to you know deal with mortars, machine gun fire, um, and there's a you know pilots that are flying above this uh, this tragedy and and they. 
the the record is that you know this lagoon, this you know pristine blue lagoon, it never um, it's never free of red. I mean, it, it's just it's a it's a sea awash with red the entire three days, um, and and it's uh, it it leaves an impression on everybody who uh, encounters it, um, just because of the. You know the Marines that are being pulled from this lagoon for the next three days. They're completely. There's no. They don't have hair. They're completely swollen. It's a. It's a crime scene. Every every single person in there. It's a crime scene. Um. So the, uh, you know, the myth is that uh, because of this, you know, the Navy decides that they have to, uh, on every subsequent battle, they've got to uh, create a unit that can uh, destroy the coral so the landing craft can get in there, which is true, sort of. Um, the landing craft, you know, the, the, the coral is a problem, and it does need to be destroyed. Um, the bigger issue um, that creates the UDTs, which ultimately creates the SEAL team, is not so much the coral as it is uh, the fact that the Navy um, is, at this point in the war, they're not uh, given access to the Marine Corps special units because the Marine Corps, like I said in Chapter 1, they have uh, elevated their status to such a point that they are now on parity with the Navy. So up until that point, the Marine or the, the Navy had this impression that the Marine Corps was at subservient service, and on every battle, Navy admirals could trump Marine Corps generals. Um, but at this point in the war, the Marine Corps generals, um, they're they're just as uh, they're they're on they're on par with their their navy admirals. So if the navy wants to send out reconnaissance troops, a special reconnaissance uh, mission, or if they wanted to conduct a raid or anything like that, they've got to go through the Marine Corps because they're the only guys that ha- or they're the only service uh, that has a unit that could do any of those things. So when Turner Turner is the um, the commander of the Fifth Amphibious Force. He does not. Uh, he hates this policy. Absolutely hates it. He's the he's the biggest. Uh, um, I describe him as the the first uh, personification of an actual life Ahab in um, uh, the Pacific <laughs> Theater. He is he's the biggest. Uh, what do you call him? He's the biggest dick that's ever served in the 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 surface navy. Um, he's a he's a he's a tyrant almost, and he absolutely hates the fact that he does not have. Uh, control of the Marines in the way that he anticipated having control of the Marines. So he's not as concerned about destroying the coral as he is with having his own unit that he can control, that he can send out to find out information um, and either find it out, cut it out, whatever. That's why he creates the UDTs. It's it's not a it's not a issue of coral as it mm-hmm. is uh, chain control. of command control. Yeah. Um, one of the characters that you uh, cut, I guess, James Jones from the Recon Company. Mm-hmm. What's this guy all about? James Jones is uh, – so one of the options uh, that the Navy had uh, prior to this uh, sort of re- realignment or reassessment of, Navy, of Marine Corps authority would, would have been the VAC Recon Company, the, the VAC, the 5th Amphibious Force, VAC. Um, uh, that would have been a unit that uh, – Kelly Turner, Admiral Turner, would have had access to to send on special special missions, um, special assignments, including missions to destroy coral, find coral, things like that. Um, but uh, now that the Marine Corps is, you know, has the status that it does, you know, he doesn't really have access to this unit anymore. But it's a, it's sort of the. Um, the replacement for the Marine Corps Raiders. It's not as big as the Raiders were intended to be, but um, they they 
they, they sort of form this unit around James Jones. He's a, uh, he's a really interesting uh, character. He was a, uh, a tractor salesman in Africa before the war. Uh, he, and it, just by being a tractor salesman, he manages to pick up multiple languages. He's a really, really interesting guy. Um, and he was one of the initial um, uh, guys put in charge of the, of the Observer Group, which was the unit that ultimately became the Scouts and Raiders. Um, as a side note, I... Uh, he is the father of James Jones, the national of uh, uh, um, um, Obama's first national security advisor. Uh, Wait, father or grandfather? Father. Father. Wow. He's a father, and I. So when I was doing my initial research for this, I was trying to get an interview with with him. No, uh, no dice. I, I I was close. I had uh, I, That's I was not going dice, bro. It was not dice. I, <laughs> no dice. I was going back back and forth with his uh, secretary. He has a uh, not a nonprofit, but like a strategic think think tank. Um, and I was going back and forth with his uh, secretary. Couldn't make it work. So no dice. You're right. No dice. No dice. And well, then what happened with the with the what Vac happened Re- with them? The Vac Recon Company. Um, they uh, initially. Um, uh, they, they have some uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty impressive raids uh, right around uh, the time of uh, um, Tarawa. They they raid uh, a little uh, island of Apamama. Uh, that's you know it's kind of a it's it's a similar um, Macon Island uh, style raid. They use the same uh, submarine uh, that they that the raiders use for uh, Macon Island. Uh, they they um, it's it's kind of a textbook. Um, island raid, um, you know, Navy and Marine Corps cooperation. Uh, but after um, after that, the they don't really do much until uh, the Battle of Okinawa. And the reason that they're important is because they're kind of um, once the UDT are created, uh, you can see how important the UDT become and how less important every other unit becomes. And at one point, um, the Vac Recon Company. Uh, doesn't really have a mission, so they assign them to the UDTs, and so they take every Marine that's in the VAC Recon Company that can swim, and they plug them into uh, uh, a UDT. Do they actually get transferred to the Navy or no? No, they don't get transferred, uh, and by uh, Okinawa, they they, uh, separate themselves from the UDT again, uh, and they're back to doing their sort of island raids. But until Okinawa, there's not a lot of other little satellite islands to do the things that they they were trained to do. And then what about... Uh, the USS Burfish recon of of Yap. This was UDT UDT ten operation. What was going on there? Yeah, that was one of the. Um, um, that's in August of forty four. There's a series of uh, uh, sort of secret um, reconnaissance. So after um, the Tinian reconnaissance. Which Draper Kaufman leads. Um, it's a it's a combined reconnaissance between uh, VAC recon, so the Marine recon and uh, UDT swimmers. Um, the Navy really sees the potential of doing these night secret reconnaissance of various islands. So the next group of islands that the uh, uh, Pacific planners are hoping to capture are in the Palau, so Peleliu, that whole episode in the war. So one of the satellite islands of Peleliu is this island of Yap. And uh, so the USS Burfish with a uh, contingent of UDT swimmers, uh, half of whom are uh, not haven't really been trained in the 
uh, traditional UDT uh, curriculum, which they've established at Maui, but um, half of them are actually OSS maritime swimmers. Uh, they send a combined uh, recon team ashore at Yap. Uh, three of the swimmers get separated from their boat. The boat ends up paddling back to the, uh, the USS Burfish, which is the submarine. Uh, they come back out the next night trying to recover uh, the swimmers, hoping that they've managed to stay alive ashore and not get captured. Um, but they, uh, after the second night, they realize they're not going to be able to have a link up, and uh, three swimmers get left behind. And they are three, they're the, as far as I know, they're the only three missing, um, well, there's, there's a couple of others, but um, there are three unaccounted for NSW members out there. We still have not recovered their bodies. We think... Um, based off of the research of one uh, archivist at uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the National Archives, uh, who's also uh, Moonlights as a historian himself, Nate Patch, he's put together a pretty um, pretty convincing argument that the, the bodies are probably at Bevel Thuap. Um, they're buried with a handful of other uh, captured American aviators. But we have not, not found them. There's an effort right now uh, by Project Recover uh, to try and track their bodies down. All right. Um. But li- likely they were captured. They were bounced around. The Japanese tried to, you know, do a cover-up uh, of their execution. They said that they were put on a transport uh, bound for the South Pacific back to the Philippines. Uh, based off of the research that Nate Patch did, looks like that was all just manufactured, and they were killed right there. So that that chapter kind of kind of brings the the underwater demolition teams sort of how how we really got the traction going on the underwater demolition teams and then in chapter six you start going into just the the uh, a totally different aspect of warfare i mean a totally different aspect of warfare chapter six is called the contest for guerrilla war in china and the organization that had no damn business fighting it the u.s navy's army of soldiers and this is definitely one of the wildest um, sections in the book. All pretty much centered, centered around this this guy Miles, um, who. This is a, like a whole book unto itself. Of course, I guess I say that over again, over again for all your characters. But this guy's insane. No, I well, mean, quite, I, and I quite literally the, at the end, I guess he is insane, right? He uh, is. I mean, the the effort breaks him. It completely breaks him. He's. Uh, um, He's committed uh, to a, a, a mental institution. Um, it takes him uh, several months to, and, and part of that's drug-induced. I mean, he's self-medicating by the end of the war, um, taking an incredible uh, cocktail worth of medicine just to, you know, either stay awake, go to sleep, and then uh, deal with the, the pain uh, that he's dealing with in the fevers, too. He's got almost constant malaria throughout the entire war. But, yeah, I mean, of all the guys that I, I mean, I say there's kind of a, um, uh, a horse race uh, in my head for who is the weirdest character in the book. <laughs> and Miles is definitely leaning for the tape. I mean, he's like... Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he's fascinating in, um, in the sense of how unremarkable he seems. Like, when you meet Miles, like, he seems like any other ship officer that you would encounter. Just like if you... You know, did a visit or any of the you know uh, other guys. You know, he's he's not a physical specimen. He's kind of you know nerdy looking. He's just forgettable. <laughs> he's totally forgettable. He's not like he's not like a, a exotic person. He's not like a he's not like a Lawrence of Arabia type character at all. And yet he does everything. I mean, 
what he contributes to the war is every bit as remarkable as, as a Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I mean, we, we ran over the figures on the last time you were on this podcast, but he had the, the, this massive guerrilla force that he ends up running. With no business uh, doing it. With no business doing it. And that, and that it, quote that's from the, the title, No Damn Business, that comes from another Navy officer, one of Miles' <laughs> friends. He's like, we have no damn business doing this. <laughs> I found the letter. Like, if, if, if a, you know, one of Miles' friends thinks that you know we the navy has no damn business then what hope did we really ever have yeah and yet the impact that they had was completely strategic they end up killing somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 i think enemy japanese soldiers but more important tying up a million of them yeah, right only lost a handful of yeah. americans it uh, doesn't account for the number of chinese lost i mean yeah, but yeah. you're right i mean the the chinese contribution is is you know it's unaccounted for and you know significant um, but yeah, only some six six American uh, six American deaths in the entire effort, which is a you know the effort you know stretches from 1942 to all the way to 1945. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. There should be a book written about this. And well, when I when I got into this, I didn't want to write this chapter. I was so tired of not so tired, but I was like I was so anxious to be done with World War II when I finished my UDT chapter, and I was so ready to move on to Korea. I just wanted different scenery, different a different uh, record group at the mm-hmm. National Archives. Uh, when I got to this point, <laughs> I mean, all I wanted to do was leave, and I was just trying to, like, you know, take this China stuff and kind of stuff it into, like, an introductory section of my Korean War chapter, and I couldn't do it. One chapter or one page became two pages, then became three pages and four pages, and I was like, mother, mother. <laughs> I had to write a whole new chapter. It derailed my entire timeline for, you know, finishing the book. What's the movie potential for, uh, for for this? For this, I think that I mean I think, you know, if you have to, if I was going to say like which of these, I think they could all be movies, but you know, if you haven't seen, we, we've seen you know Saving Private Ryan, um, we've never seen a um, a representation of a guerrilla war um, like what happened in China in World War II. It could totally. And Miles is such a, you know, an interestingly an interesting character he could be like i mean he he's interesting in the fact that he's so boring but he does i mean he's i mean he survives 40 assassination attempts um he's uh, he's a naval officer who's involved in and probably more ground combat than anybody else uh in history yeah including a freaking cavalry charge on camels yeah <laughs> it's nuts it's nuts the whole thing is nuts but yeah that the movie potential of chapter six is is high i think the movie potential of you know the udt chapter is just as high too i mean that's I mean, the imagine seeing, or I, I can see a movie of, you know, these guys, you know, totally, you know, going into battle with just knives and, you know, fins and masks. That'd be pretty neat. Uh, you have another character that you bring in here, uh, going to the book. At 60 years old, thick jowled and with white hair parted just off center, Wild Bill Donovan, a nickname he had earned as a volunteer leading soldiers through mud, gas, and death on the Western Front looked in his uniform nothing like the head of an insatiable, insatiable, unconventional warfare organization and more like an overweight toddler playing dress up. (laughs) For signs of the former, one had to look elsewhere. First to his left breast, where he had humbly affixed a single ribbon, his medal of honor, in effect saying to his peers that no other awards mattered. And second to a career as an attorney, as a New York attorney and politician, occupations that had introduced him to everyone from movie stars to Mussolini. 
and taken him further around the world than most presidents. He had been to Siberia to size up Bolsheviks, to the Far East to hunt down business, Ethiopia to tour the Italian front, the Balkans, Turkey, and Spain as the president's unofficial envoy. In past ages, a hero millionaire like Donovan could have responded to a world crisis simply by raising his own regiment, equipping it, and leading it into battle. In the 20th century, such impulses had been curbed by the increasing complexities of modern warfare and a corresponding bureaucracy that recognized the limited value of eccentric amateurs, Medal of Honor or not. Now blocked from commanding regular troops, Donovan, courageous, entrepreneurial, imaginative, and most of all, unstoppable, had set his sights on the only field of action whose battle lines had not yet been drawn and on the one man who stood in his way. <laughs> What's a, up with Donovan, dude? Well, it's an, it, it's an impossible um, uh, contest. I mean, Donovan is, when I, when I set out to write this, not this chapter, but when I, I, I set out to write an OSS chapter and I, I was attracted to it just because of Donovan. He is a, I mean, <laughs> There should be a Donovan movie. He's, I mean, all the, you know, the stories about uh, um, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, dressing up in women's clothes. Like, <laughs> these are rumors that Donovan started. <laughs> I mean, he's responsible for so much. And, you know, Wait, when you say that, you mean he actually was responsible for starting the rumors about J. Edgar Hoover jump, jump, dressing up in women's clothing? He, yes. That's what we're saying. I'm saying, yes, he is responsible. I'm not saying that. This isn't hyperbole. This no. is what this guy did. No, and the reason he did that is because at the time, the OSS and the FBI were in some sort of competition uh, <laughs> for the international intelligence mission. And one and of them he turned into to, a cross-dresser. <laughs> he wanted to delegitimize his rival as best as he could. I mean, and, and uh, at the same time, J. Edgar Hoover was, um, uh, he, he was, putting rumors out there that Donovan was having an affair with his daughter-in-law. So they were both at each other from like... So is there any truth to the rumor of J. Edgar Hoover dressing up in women's clothing? I don't know about that, but I think there is suspicion that Donovan was actually having an affair with his daughter-in-law. His son's wife. Yeah. That's that's pretty... Uh, and so how does he play into our into our story here for, for the development of the SEAL teams? So uh, Donovan's important because Donovan sees what the Navy's doing in China and he wants it. He doesn't think the Navy should have anything to do with this. Uh, Donovan has established himself as the uh, the head of the international or uh, head of the U.S. intelligence organization, which he has understood uh, to uh, include all sorts of special programs. Um, so, if there's going to be a guerrilla warfare effort in China, OSS is going to be in charge of it. So he comes to China. Um, so first, uh, he tries to. Uh, um, rope Miles into the OSS. And he establishes Miles as an OSS, not operative, but uh, head of an OSS program. Mm -hmm. Problem is, um, Donovan also wants to send all of his uh, OSS folks uh, to support Sacco. Um, But Miles, uh, Miles starts to receive these guys, and they're all, you know, um, a lot of these guys are, you know, they're you know, pretty interesting guys, but Miles doesn't want anything to do with them. They're like wannabes. I get, the, I get the sort of wannabes. Kind of like wannabes sort of like they know? because because they're Miles, all boondogglers. Because right. who Miles is getting is Marine Corps officers, like primarily, right? He's getting Marine Corps officers in the beginning, but what he really wants are people that don't know anything about China. He doesn't want racists. Oh, Miles is um, that weird. He's the peculiar type of officer who actually 
he likes the the indigenous people that he's working with. He doesn't want them to. Um, um, I mean, he's he's a perfect character for you know you know today, but at the time, like nobody really understands like what's his hang up. He he's infatuated with China. He's infatuated with the Chinese. He thinks that these are uh, um, uh, uh, you know members of the most you know one of the most civilized um, you know uh, countries on the planet, um, and he uh, has respect for them in, in the way that other Americans don't. Um, he he totally rejects uh, the, uh, the 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 orientalism or the, um, the the superior American idea. In that way, he's he's just like you know T. E. Lawrence. I mean, he's um, he's a believer. Um, he's the worst kind of person. And so, I mean, he's like he actually I, I'm my worst worst kind of person. I'm only joking. He's like um, to other people, he's uh, um, he's not pliable. He's um, um, he really believes in the potential of these uh, uh, Chinese soldiers to tie the Japanese down or to actually attack them. And, you know, Donovan comes in, and Donovan's a manipulator. Donovan's been manipulating for years. Um, he's, he, you know, managed to, he, he squirreled himself into positions his entire, uh, you know, since, since he got that Medal of Honor. He's used it to, you know, plow pathways through bureaucracy um, and to create a unit that never should have been created to create this OSS and and to and some of his schemes are completely harebrained um, but some of them are not some of them are actually you know pretty good so he when he sees Donovan he's trying or when he when Donovan sees Miles he first wants to you know put Miles under his thumb and when Miles can't be put under his thumb he tries to take the whole thing and leave Miles with the weather stations. That's all he wants to leave Miles with. He wants to take this entire guerrilla army that Miles is starting to build, um, and he justifies that because Miles is, you know, like I like quote in the book, he's not putting scalps on the barrelhead fast enough, and he almost does it. He gets real close, but the thing that stops him is the Chinese won't work with Donovan, but they do like Miles. They can smell the intent. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Donovan is freaking. Shady. It's tough to, you know. I, mean, I, I guess to, he's got to be shady a little bit. He right? is. I mean, he's. I mean, he. You know, it's tough to not, you know, respect Donovan. He's. He's a character, like. Uh, and he, you know, but he's a he's a he's a toddler with a with a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can we go back real quick? There's yeah, a, there's go two back. characters that I want to talk about from the UDT. I think that okay, hit them. Uh, Alan Gordon Leslie. Uh, I was I was thinking about uh, um, the contribution of other um, uh, other branches of service to the UDTs. Alan Gordon Leslie is a Marine uh, that gets attached to SEAL Team or to, <laughs> to UDT five. He becomes Draper Kaufman's executive officer of UDT five uh, for the Battle of Saipan. Um, he is uh, he's Canadian, um, and I was thinking about him the other day because we're here in San Diego. And I was walking through the Hotel Dell, and I was looking at this, you know, this, you know, monument to, you know, Victorian architecture and everything. And it was there, you know, during World War II. And uh, Gordon Leslie, he goes through the entire war. He um, he's one of the scout snipers who seizes the pier at Tarawa. He shoulders a um, a flamethrower and uh, uh, assaults the entire pier. So that there's this there's this pier, you know, cutting into the uh, the lagoon mm-hmm. at Tarawa, and 
in th- that that pier would have threatened to cut into the flank of the uh, the Marines that were landing on the beach. So the Marines had to take it before they landed. So they sent a scout sniper platoon to do it. And Gordon Leslie was the guy with the flamethrower. He's fighting, all, you know, pillbox to pillbox or uh, emplacement to emplacement, and uh, you, you know. Um, using the uh, the flamethrower to destroy guys while he's got a machine gunner to his left and they're going down this incrementally taking the entire pier. Um, he survives the Battle of Tarawa and he becomes, uh, he volunteers for the UDT um, as sort of a Marine Corps liaison, but he falls in love with the UDT and manages to stay with them and the Marine Corps completely loses track of him. <laughs> they don't know where he is. They think they think he's a casualty. He stays with UDT-5 uh, throughout the remainder of the war. And when he ends the war, he tries to transfer uh, from the, um, officially transfer for, from the Marine Corps to the UDTs. He wants to stay with the frogmen. It becomes so controversial, it goes all the way up to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. And the Marines uh, say, we're not losing a Marine to the Navy, especially to the UDT. We're, we're, we're going to keep him. So he's entitled to like $4,000 with the back pay because he hasn't gotten it in three years. <laughs> so in, uh, uh, in retaliation, he takes his $4,000. He goes to the Hotel Dell. He slaps that $4,000 on the, on the front desk, reserves a peninsula of rooms um, in, the, in the Dell, uh, and he throws a two-week bender. <laughs> it's so bad that Draper Kaufman has to put up a watch bill of officers to make sure that that his frogmen don't leave that wing of the uh, of the hotel. <laughs> Good yeah. times. And who's the other guy you wanted to bring up? Uh, Norman's or uh, um, uh, Seymour Owens, Commander Seymour Owens. So one of the um, one of the uh, the great things about you know doing the research for this book is you get to discover all of the uh the characters that weren't seals or that weren't frogmen that contributed to the um the importance or the uh the success of uh, naval special warfare and one of those one of those that's always stood out to me is commander seymour owens he was a uh, destroyer skipper um uh, and he was involved in the uh the fire support mission um uh prior to the invasion of Tinian. So Tinian is the greatest strategic um, uh, battle probably of the entire Central Pacific uh, campaign. It's the island that ultimately becomes the uh, um, uh, the airfield uh, that they uh, you know, fly all the uh, long-range bombers to, to bomb Japan on. Uh, that's it's where the Enola Gay takes off from uh, to bomb Japan. It's, it's a perfect uh, tabletop island. Um, but before it can be that, it has to be taken. And one of the, the biggest uh, coups of the war is Draper Kaufman's reconnaissance of the of the beaches that uh, nobody ever thought anybody could land on. Uh, but in order to sell that, in order to land all those troops on those uh, beaches that nobody expects, uh, UDT-7 has to stage this elaborate um, ruse uh, on the south of the island um, uh, at Tinian Town. And so... Um, on the day of the actual invasion, when all of the Marines are secretly sneaking into the uh, the beaches that Draper Kaufman has found, um, the UDT-7 is you know conducting a, a daylight you know reconnaissance, and they're protected by you know multiple battleships. One being the USS Colorado. Another Colorado has lighted itself up um, amidships or a, 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 with a broadside uh, to the beach, um, and it takes a devastating. Um, uh, uh, 
uh, naval gunfire, uh, shore gunfire, um, and the, its guns are knocked out. And the, suddenly, uh, all the swimmers of UDT-7 are exposed, and they're, they're about to, uh, the Japanese are about to switch their guns away from the ships that are defending them to the swimmers in the water. Now, Seymour Owens is the brother-in-law of Draper Kaufman. He sees what's happened. He sees that the Colorado's guns have been knocked out, and he commands his ship without orders. He commands uh, the Norman Scott to get between the Colorado, so one, the Colorado can escape, and two, so he can also protect uh, the UDT swimmers that are in the water. Suddenly, uh, the USS Norman Scott becomes the center of all Japanese uh, naval gunfire, and it's destroyed. Uh, I think 47 sailors are, are killed in the process. Uh, including Seymour Owens, but he does it because he knows how important it is to draw the Japanese attention away from those beaches in the north. Anyway. Damn. Um, how are we doing? We're doing, uh, I'll tell you how we're doing. We, we're we're going to stop for today. Uh, that's the end of World War II, right? Um, and, and again, um, that's the end of World War II. We hit some of the wave tops. We there, there's so much more incredible information in the book. Um, get it. But what we'll do is we'll just we'll just record another podcast. Um, actually, we'll just do it after this one so people can stay in the groove on it. But I think that's about it for today because we're looking at we're already at, we're already over three hours, bro, or at least real close to three hours. So uh, thanks for coming out, Ben. Appreciate it. Um, Echo. What, what do you think? Any any major you know things you need to bring up? Uh, no, nothing major. It's just interesting to hear all these all this stuff that was going on under my nose the whole time. Under your nose, under all of our noses the whole time. Yep. Uh, a, if you want to support the podcast, you can do it. On the, I'm I'm drinking some go right now. Probably. How's that go tasting? I, you you said it, but I was in the middle. You were in the middle of uh, telling me cool stories, and then you you said it's delicious. You got mango mayhem right there. You know that's Echo Charles has got his own signature flavor. That's how cool Echo Charles thinks he is. <laughs> it's my first time. I don't think I've ever had a yeah an energy drink. Well, you it's know what? It's starting to get to the. You're probably not going to sleep a bunch after you drink that bad boy. So if you need some of that stuff, get some Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel dot com. Uh, that's where we're selling this stuff. Also, Vitamin Shops got it going on. Yep. Uh, Wawa's got it going on for the drinks. You know we have. We have. Uh, ready to drink milk coming yeah. that you can be able to go into a store and just grab a cold milk out of the fridge <laughs> salted caramel ever heard of that yeah, i've heard i've heard <laughs> salted yeah. caramel is definitely a thing we got chocolate vanilla um b- uh, banana cream so the perfect mix we got a mix coming your way mm. so we got that coming uh don't forget about your joint warfare and whatnot krill oil what else OriginUSA.com. Yep, yep. American-made stuff. American-made stuff. Keeping our economy going in the right way, yeah, by the way. Yeah. It'd be real easy. It's real easy. I was, I was having a conversation with someone the other day like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, oh, that, they, they, I saw another brand like that. I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. There's yeah. no other brand like this. Yeah. There's no one else that's doing this. Yeah. If someone goes, oh, you know, we're going to get into the uh, jujitsu market. Cool. I take... Seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and I order some rash guards from China mm-hmm. and get them printed. Yeah. Cool. Now you got a brand, bro. No, that's not what I'm talking it's about. Different. We invested our lives mm-hmm. into this, into buying the equipment, capturing the know-how. You know, you talk about how some of the people that you would 
you have interviewed that have since died uh, and, and you wouldn't have been able to capture that knowledge. We've actually had that happen at Origin. People that, the old timers, and I mean that with all due respect, the old timers, the people that knew how to run a loom, the people that knew how to work on machines, the people that knew how to weave and knit, they, they passed this information out. Some of them, we're losing them now. Hmm. So if you started a brand for, you know, $4,000 by ordering some stuff from China and slap that, uh, hey, good for you. That's fine. No, 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 no. But let's face it, it's, it's not too good for it's you. Way different. Uh, don't do that. You want to support a real company, an American company, go to originusa.com. We're making everything you need, by the way jeans, boots, t shirts, sweatshirts, rash guards, whole nine yards. So mm-hmm. check that out, originusa.com. It's true. Also, Jocko oh, has a store. Oh, hunt gear, too. Oh, yeah. I know you're no, seeing it coming. And I, know, yeah, oh, yeah. I know you like to wear camouflage pants for no reason, Echo Charles. To be camouflaged. <laughs> well, I mean, just saying. You're that dual-use kind of survivorist, survivalist, sure. prepper. Sure. You're like, just in case I got to go into the jungle, I'm going to be ready to rock and roll. We got this pattern. There's a little bit of a tribute to our forefathers. The the pattern that we've made for camouflage is, you know, the, obviously the primary goal is to make sure it's effective. But we were able to make it effective, Ben, while still Giving a little bit of a of a of a shout out to to the tiger stripe to the tiger stripes. So, you know, one we got one for the one for the Highlands, sort of the Western colors, and another one for the more like the Eastern colors. So we got like a woodland versus a more of a Highland camis. But yeah, a little bit of tiger stripe activity. It's coming. Both viable for me. Both viable. Way. Yeah, because you know. You, you never know what you're going to get into. Whatever. I wore, the, I wore the heavy, the hoodie, mm-hmm. snowboarding. Yeah, Vi- viable. Viable. Completely. Viable. Oh, yeah. Right Forever. on. There you go. Yep. Also, right. Jocko has a store called Jocko Store. It's where you can represent, where you get your shirts to represent. Discipline equals freedom. Good. Other stuff. Just a, a good way to represent on the path. When you see somebody else wearing this kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. You know. You know what's up. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget about Jocko Underground. We appreciate your support. We just got done recording one this morning. It's going to be a long day in the office today, bro. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. If you want to support Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. Check that out. We got a YouTube channel. We got some books. Primary book I want to talk about, By Water Beneath the Walls. Look, Ben, straight up. I was being straight up with you before. <laughs> Probably not the title we would have gone with, you know? <laughs> It's hard to say. It's a mouthful. We have no idea what it means. <laughs> oh, did you read the? You read the? Of course, I read it. I right. get it. There's a tie back to whatever battle took place nine thousand years ago, and you want to make that's the big. Yeah. Plus, he likes the wordy. Yeah. Like, you know. I know. Mate, we're actually surprised. We're actually lucky. Maybe that was the short <laughs> version of the title. Oh, you should have seen the other. You should have seen the options I had for subtitle. Oh, man, no. scary. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, let me tell you. Um, all kidding aside, this is an absolute. This is an incredible book. It's 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 an incredible book. The the knowledge that it will give you is phenomenal. It's also it's also really funny. You've got your you've got you sit over there with your little dry sense of humor, um, and that that dry sense of humor just shines through throughout the book. And it's it's dramatic. It's funny, dude. It's like a, you know, I feel like a commercial for some weird uh, summer movie. You know, Dark like comedy. yeah, it's like funny, <laughs> sad. You'll laugh and you'll cry, sure. you, and that's the truth. Yeah. Honestly, in this book, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn. Uh, phenomenal book. Don't sleep on this book. And and you know, there's there's an audio book too. Who reads the audio uh, book? 
Do you know some random actor, some yeah, dude? No, I can't believe it. I can't remember his name. Um, it's not Keikoa. It's uh, uh, Kaleo Griffiths. He's okay. a Hawaiian name. Uh, I, I, I listened right to I listened to the sample just to kind of see what we were doing with. Yeah. F- freaking good to go. Um, yeah. So you can get the you can get the uh, the audio book as well, and sort of like you you won't f- you'll feel like you're listening to a podcast, or you'll feel like it's very engaging. So yeah, they did a, they did a great support job. this book. Uh, Ben put seven years of his life into this book. I don't know how bad your eyesight got reading through all these things, but you've you've made some sacrifices to get this book done. And and as I said, the first time you were on, there's no one, in my opinion, uh, a non-seal couldn't have written this book, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think the fact that you served, the fact that you're a combat veteran, that you were in the SEAL teams is you have a perspective that that comes through that an authenticity that comes through it's just a, it's just a phenomenal book so by water beneath the walls by ben milligan get that book immediately you already know all the books i've written so get some of those too um if you need some help with leadership inside your organization you want to talk about decentralized command let us know echelonfront.com and uh if you want to go check out some battlefields we do an awesome battlefield review we do Getty. You've been to Gettysburg, yeah. We do Gettysburg. No kidding. We're also yeah. If you want to come, let me know. Uh, and we also are doing Little Bighorn this year. Oh, wow. So if you want to check those out, go to, go to echelonfront.com. Next muster's in Dallas. Wait, is that the next one? No, we just it, did Dallas. No, next yeah. one's Denver. Colorado. Yeah. So we got a bunch of those events. We got the online training academy, which. You know that thing, I started this thing off talking about how you can't get all the lessons learned across to everybody that you want them to. And that's one of the reasons we have the the online academy, extremeownership.com. The goal, the mission of Echelon Front is to teach these lessons to as many people as we possibly can. That's the goal. Me, Leif, JP, Dave, Steve, we can't get around to everybody. But you know what? Everybody can get online, extremeownership.com. Come and learn these lessons of leadership so that you can use them in every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life. You can, you can help you. You can help yourself. Um, if you want to help service members, you want to help active, active duty service members, you want to help retired service members, you want to help their families, the Gold Star families, any of those, if you want to participate in an awesome charity, Mark Lee's mom, she's got an unbelievable charity organization, americasmightywarriors.org, if you want to volunteer or if you want to help out. And don't forget about heroesandhorses.com, Micah Fink, keeping people out of the algorithm, getting them back on track. As far as Echo and I go, we're both on Twitter. We're on the gram. Echo's at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Watch out for the algorithm. Where, what's your what's your Instagram handle? <laughs> Call sign B Milligan three. B Milligan three. I think you should have made one longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on I'm on the Twitters and the Wi-Fi's. And the oh, you're on Twitter too? Yeah. Okay. Is I it think, the same thing? Ben, ben Milligan three. Ben H Milligan on Twitter. Ben H Milligan on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. Um, a Seriously, thanks for coming on again. Thank you. Uh, appreciate this is, it. This is fantastic. It's always great to be here. And, and thanks for writing that book. Thanks for reading it. And th- not not only that, but thanks for you know. It uh, this it took it took a lot to do this, and it, um, being able to give this back to the teams was you know. You know this is this is why I'm here. So. so.
this is my contribution to you know that institution that you know defined us so 100% man awesome um and we'll, we'll we'll pick this up where we left off on the next podcast thanks to all the military personnel past and present who laid the groundwork for progression who laid the groundwork for what we were able to do via your lessons written in blood so thank you and thanks to all the police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders out there, thank you for what you do on the home front so that we can be safe. And everyone else out there, man, this story right here that we're talking about is about opportunities, about looking for opportunities. It's about taking ownership of what's going on in your world. It's about seeing where you can help out. It's about seeing where you can fill a gap. That's what this is about. The SEAL teams just didn't sprout up from nowhere into this fully blossomed flower. Didn't happen at all. It happened one piece of dirt at a time to build up into something that's worthwhile. That's the way life is. And the only way that happens is if you go out there and get after it. And until next time, this is Ben Milligan and Echo and Jocko out.